consequences. They sure suck, don't they? America was built on freedom, not on a bunch of people with more money than you telling you what you can and can't do with all their stupid laws. Laws are arbitrary. Hi, my name is Daniel Music, and I'm a criminal defense attorney based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I stand ready, willing, able, and committed to defend you on all manner of criminal charges, including murder, arson, burglary, bank robbery, simple and aggravated assault, and possibly even funny throwback crimes such as moonshining or pickpocketing. When you're charged with a serious criminal offense, you're facing the fight of your life. You need a lawyer who understands you and understands where you're coming from. That is an actual commercial by a former Pittsburgh lawyer named Daniel Musig. Musig is a Pittsburgh folk hero. Any day now, he will go to prison for five years for conspiring to distribute 100 kilograms or more of marijuana, that's the charge, and possession of marijuana. He was busted by an FBI task force who identified him through a wiretap. Of course he broke the law, but should we be sending anyone to jail over marijuana? The fact is, even though we live in a world where marijuana is quasi-legal, there's still a prohibition. The illegal pot business is full of very shady people doing very dangerous stuff, which is why the rewards are so great. When music was busted, they found almost half a million dollars in cash. What does it say about this country that someone would have to go to such lengths to pay off their student loans? For this episode of Failed State Update, we are going to hear co-host J.G. Michael's epic two-hour interview with Daniel Musig. It's a wide-ranging conversation covering everything from American drug law to Jewish mob history in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill neighborhood specifically, and the details of the case, uh, the man that some people are calling a real-life Saul Goodman. So I encourage you to Give it a listen, and if um, you're moved by uh, Daniel's story and want to do something, uh, pardonsnow.com is kind of a political campaign that's popped up around Daniel's case, and more importantly, around the case of so many other people that have had their lives ruined over this ridiculous marijuana prohibition. Thanks, Dan. One thing I've realized is that the paradigmatic niceties of human interaction when you're in a situation like this become really perverse. I don't like beat people over the head with it. I do answer honestly when people who know my situation ask me like, but like if I'm on the phone with customer service or something and they're like, how are you? I'm not like, I'm going to prison. Cause like, what, what is that? You know, you're just dropping that on someone's lap. But when someone who knows what's up, asks me, I just tell them the truth. I, I, just, I, I don't, I, I'm so beaten down at this point. I don't even have the energy to, to lie anymore, you know? So I want to get into your case and, uh, you know, Joe Br- Biden's uh, broken promises uh, about, you know, uh, pot and marijuana and whatnot. But before we do that, I think listeners are wanting to go wanting, wanting to know right off the bat, in, in case they're not from Pittsburgh or they haven't heard about it before, why you became known as the real life uh, Saul Goodman. So prior to my infamy as being one of the region's largest or the largest organized uh, cannabis trafficker, 
I was a brash, hard-charging left-wing criminal defense attorney, and I made a satirical ad when I got out of law school advertising my services in a commercial called Thanks, Dan, where it showed uh, various criminals committing different kinds of crimes, and then it would have an infographic that showed the crime they committed, and then they turned to the camera and thanked me. And then I, it was, it was very better call Saul ask. It was really, really funny and ham handed and campy. The one thing that was crazy about it was I used actual street guys, like real crooks in the commercial. Oh, really? Wow. Those, those are all like real street guys. There's I, like maybe one or two of them aren't criminals, but like they're all <clears throat> pretty crazy dudes. A bunch of them are. I mean, so, one so of the, was guys the from- prostitute really a prostitute. <laughs> no, she was actually the only, she, she was, she was an actress. But like the guy with the braids, that's my cousin. He went to prison like three weeks after the commercial came out and got out like in July. Um, One of the guys in front of the court was a graffiti writer and a street guy. He unfortunately got murdered a few years ago. Um, The two guys who are the armed robbers, they were Wiz Khalifa's or are Wiz Khalifa's bodyguards, you know, real serious dudes with a serious reputation from the city. Um, The guy breaking out, of my apartment. I think he had a laptop. Uh, he's a war hero from uh, Iraq. He was in the 28th infantry division. Now he's an anti-war activist and an artist. So there's just some like really, really like actual, like real people in that commercial, which is one of the jokes. Then the other joke was that I was, Oh, and the old guy in it was the guy Dale that I had the store with. I had the underground pot store with and where it was filmed in the back, that was the location of the pot store. If the camera had panned like a foot to the left, you would have seen the awning and the stairs that I've described in the other podcasts where thousands of customers for almost a decade went to get their weed every day in Pittsburgh before the dispensaries opened. So for people who really knew what's up, it was a funny joke. And I didn't, I want to say this too. I didn't do it to um, flip off authority or like make myself a hot boy and be like, ha ha, I'm committing crimes. Fuck you. Look at me and all my criminal friends, assholes. I, yeah, did I, I was going to say really briefly, I, I saw some of the news coverage of it. I mean, it was covered in places like uh, the Times of Israel. It was covered uh, locally here. I just always took it as a, you know, a funny little video that was maybe uh, poking fun at, you know, certain stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, <clears throat> And I was doing it as a means to an end because I just gotten out of law school and I didn't want to have to go back to selling weed. And um, it was a really regressive marketplace and I needed to hang out my shingle and establish myself and get some clients. And I, you know, it's going to take a decade or more for experience to accrue. So the only way I can really do it quickly would be through, you know, the great American medium of advertising. So that's what I attempted to do it really like wasn't the people it pissed off. It wasn't intended to offend them in retrospect. Obviously they were always going to be offended because fascists don't have a sense of humor is one of my lines that I say a lot. And the thing is that I realized in mocking the American criminal justice system, the reason the commercial struck a nerve and everyone thought it was funny and it went viral because also remember, this is one of the most unlikely viral videos ever. Like there's not a girl twerking in it. There's not like, uh, you know, guys like setting themselves on fire, like jackass style. It's not a popular music video from an artist that people are super checking for and has a lot of clout and hype. I'm trying to think of other things that like go very viral. You know, it's not like a, a one minute sketch from a really famous comedian. That's super crazy, whatever, just, you know, normal things that would go viral. This is a four and a half minute long ad for legal services. You know, it's not, it's not a quick video, you know, it's a, 
has a narrative portion. It has acting portions. So for it to go viral, it really had to touch a nerve. People really had to think it was fucking funny. And one thing I've learned in this whole pro, I've learned a lot of horrible things in this process, but one thing I've learned, one adage is when something is funny and it one makes people laugh and two pisses people off, it's because it's true wasn't true if the criminal justice system wasn't a joke millions of people wouldn't have devoted their four minutes of their time on the internet to liking it and sharing it you know just would have died a death in the corner of the internet like 99.99999 percent of all other content that's created in the history of the world would have gotten 500 views 200 views or even been a moderate success you know a couple thousand views ten thousand views would have run its course or whatever the reason that it caught fire was it was funny because it was true. So I want to get into, uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the various people that show up in the video. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you direct it or did you hire a director? Because I, no, I thought I, it was I, very I, smooth. I had a director for it who's a really, really good director and a super professional. I definitely um, had a large role in it. I definitely wrote it, you know, like what people said in it was largely what I had inputted them to say, because I wrangled the talent, so to speak. And um, I also, my speech was extemporized. I literally made that up off the top of my head. That's what I wanted to talk about next. So uh, all these characters show up, they say, thanks, Dan. And then we see someone sitting in a seat, you turn around and you say, consequences. Yeah, the, 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 the chair spins around and you say, consequences, they sure suck, don't they? Uh, talk about this speech that you gave and uh, why people were so upset with it. Well, I mean, it's just so anti. I mean, if you're like a baby boomer, baby boomer adjacent authoritarian person that really ascribes to like our, you know, Calvinistic morality in our country, then me saying consequences suck. Like, of course, consequences suck. You have to make good decisions. God, law, country. You know, I'm really just saying, I mean, look, man, nobody wants to deal with the consequences of the fucking dumb shit they do. Like, can't we have, can't we have a little grace, you know, like, isn't everyone in, I mean, I'm a, you know, isn't everyone entitled to uh, you know, one do over one mulligan. I sure think I was entitled to one. I mean, shit, all I ever did was sell a fuck ton of weed and make fun of some people. And now I have to, and, and I did three things. I sold a fuck ton of weed. I made fun of the American, American criminal justice system. And I refused to rat on anybody. So because of that, I have to go do a five piece in the feds, but yeah, no, nah, I mean, they hated it because, you know, their entire system rests on consequences and fear of consequences. So someone lampooning that entire moral legalistic construct, it really struck a nerve in ways that I'm still analyzing and other people are to this day. It's like a unique cultural gem in its own way, just for that reason, because it really pissed off the criminal justice establishment because their entire ethos, not just for professionally, but as people, kind of rests, hinges, is buttressed by the fact that consequences are just, the system's just, the system works largely. And to have someone just explode that in real life, who was actually a lawyer too. That's the one thing. I mean, Better Call Saul, they could probably laugh at, but they never had to see Better Call Saul in the court. Were you thinking of uh, Better Call Saul when you did the video or? No, you know what, to be honest, I really, really wasn't. And I mean that. I really wasn't. I, I, you know, I don't, I guess, I guess it was at the same time. See, I don't know if there was the better call Saul show was out yet, or if he was just a character in breaking bad. Um, you know, 
Um, the guy, honestly, if there's anyone that I would give any credit to for inspiring me to do the commercial, it was not Better Call Saul. It was another real lawyer. It was a guy from Texas named Adam Raposa, who was a former punk rock musician, I think. And I don't even think he's a lawyer anymore. I think he grows weed now. But, you know, I never spoke to him, but he was also like a very, very out there, highly unlikely guy to become a lawyer. And he was really aggressive in court and he was really adamant about, you know, forcing rights for his clients. He did not. He was not one of these defense attorneys that went golfing with his counterparts, as you know, people always like, oh, you went golfing with the judge or the pro. No, nah, Adam Raposa didn't golf with fucking anybody. He'd go to jail all the time for, you know, not listening to what the judge told him. You know, the judge would be like, shut up. He'd be like, no, you shut up. And he'd like go do contempt time. So he had a commercial. I don't even think his didn't even make as much sense as mine. It was almost like a Jimmy the Cab Driver MTV style, like lawyer commercial. It was very very like meta and weird, but like he was like smashing a car with like cinder blocks and shit. Like I'm a fucking attorney. I'm Adam Raposa. And I remember. And so mine was different than his because mine was much more slick and kind of staged <laughs> and different personalities. Cause he was a, I guess a more down South, like Austin guy, like a true, like kind of freaky Austin guy. I'm like a street. I'm like a Jewish kind of like mobster adjacent hip hop dude from Pittsburgh. So like I, that that was I was a street guy, street kid who became a streetwise adult from Pittsburgh. So my shit was more slick, but he inspired me to know that I could do. I, I just seeing that I was like, wow, you can be a really weird lawyer and make a really fucking weird commercial and just basically like toss a cinder block in a small pond and like watch the ripples. Because I'll say this after my commercial, I re- it was all like a whirlwind, you know. But after my commercial, I remember there were some bizarre legal commercials coming out like there was that one that aired during the super bowl where the guy was like riding the motorcycle like through like the flaming graveyard and he like dug up his brother's grave and said that he was gonna like put the cops in jail for killing his brother like it was such a fucking like i mean it literally looked like a wwe wwf like like fight card primer ad so i remember like i blew the door off that shit when i mean just just as he perceptually opened the my eyes in an abstract sense as to what could be done clearly so many people copied my shtick afterwards because they were like okay you can get away with making an ad like this the thing that they didn't the thing they weren't doing was trapping at the same time which is where i verge into folkloric or like a character of legend and not in a good way because people be like this guy's legendarily a fucking idiot but you know like as i did what i knew how to do we'll put it like that Last thing about the video, how did you come up with the line? Uh, you know, you sort of tout in the uh, ad, you say, you know, you need someone that thinks like a criminal. <laughs> so could you uh, well, talk I about mean, that? So, so, so the hook line was, and I mean, and everyone, so in the commercial, I remember like the commercial like airing and like everyone watching it and everyone who knew me would say the same thing. <laughs> They'd be like, you know, I might be a lawyer, but I think like a criminal. And then there's like a couple beats after that or whatever. And every time it would come on in a place where people knew me, they would all scream in unison at the computer, at their phones. They'd be like, because you fucking are one. They'd be like, you are a crook, bro. (laughs) Like, that's why. (laughs) So the other thing I wanted to hit upon, you you sort of said, uh, you know, like, tough Jew, Jew, Jewish gangster uh, thing going on there. Could you talk a little bit about um, maybe your upbringing in uh, Squirrel Hill and, and things of that yeah, nature? So like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to yeah, like, you know, I don't want to like, like, um, 
make any like claims here. I think people need to understand what I'm saying when I say that. Okay. I never said I was a gangster. All right. I said I was engaged in organized criminal activity, mobster. There's a difference. Okay. There is because I never put a gun to anyone's head. People put guns to my head. People tried to kill me plenty of times. I never tried to kill anyone. I played a dangerous game that required a lot of balls because it, even if it's weed, when you're selling it in a large scale, organized fashion in an urban area in America, it's a fucking crazy world that you live in. Like really bad shit happens. So, you know, it's no different than back in the day in Squirrel Hill where guys had fedoras and overcoats and they had like wire rooms for taking like sports bets. Or like in the 70s when guys in Squirrel Hill had giant mustaches and lifts in their shoes and uh, trunks full of Cadillac, trunks full of Quaaludes, you know, like the the, the hustle changes over time, but the type of characters who are involved in it don't. And in terms of tough Jew, yeah, I mean, I am tough, dude, and I'll own that. I stood up to a federal mandatory minimum. I think like what, like 5% of people, because that's the thing. So, so I'll get back into my upbringing too, because and I'll preface this right now. My upbringing was incredibly privileged, upper middle class to upper class, educated, two-parent family, beautiful home life, pristine, great parents, lovely, you know, lovely family, lovely people. Okay. I never claim to be otherwise. Squirrel Hill is not a slum. Squirrel Hill is a beautiful neighborhood. It's just an ethnic enclave in the middle of a city. And I think people need to understand that. Like if you grow up in an ethnic enclave in a city, it doesn't, this is kind of like a boomer uh, duality that people have as well. It's one or the other. They're like, well, you know, you're either like a disadvantaged person of color in an inner city that like has to sell drugs to survive, or you're just like a, a, a piece of shit, like pose you who thinks you're tough and you need to pull your pants up. And the yeah, truth- I was going to say, just, just to interject here for a second. I mean, I think that's something a lot of people, unless they're in Pittsburgh, they may not know this, but I I'm based in Pittsburgh too. So, you know, you have places like Bloomfield and, and Squirrel uh-huh. Hill and they each have sort of like, there's like a Polish community. There's an Italian community. Squirrel uh-huh. Hill has the Jewish community. It is. Right. Yeah, and in of all of those place. communities, there's professors, doctors, lawyers, teachers, whatever. Cause I was at least on the surface, one of those things, but we all know in all those communities too, there's fucking street guys. There's whether you want to call them gangsters, mobsters, a crew, whatever there's dudes in those neighborhoods and and squirrel and Pittsburgh is almost like, I always called it when I was hustling like real life grand theft auto, because it's 93 neighborhoods. And like, there's so many different ethnicities in all the neighborhoods and there's so many factions and groups, you know, there's really are like the Indians who live in the North Hills and they got guys who make money and sell drugs and whatever. Then you got the Jews in squirrel Hill. And then you have the Italians in Bloomfield and you got the Yinzers in Greenfield and you got some Polish guys. Guys, well, now it's all like crust punks, but a lot of those dudes hustle too. You got those guys in Polish Hill. You got the hipsters. Some of those guys are fucking like, you know, bikers, graffiti writers. Like it really is like real life Grand Theft Auto. The Asians, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Koreans, like each one, especially when you have something as ubiquitous as pot. There's literally someone from each one of these factions that's getting busy and making money. So that's like that's 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 so like when I say that, you know, I, I say all that to say this, that. You know, I, I I just don't understand why that's such a hard concept for people to understand that when you peel back any neighborhood, particularly an ethnic urban enclave where like the same group of people has been living there for a long time, there's always going to be a durable underworld that provides the needs of those neighborhoods, whether you wanted to take a drink when you couldn't take a drink, 
get a girl when you couldn't get a girl, make a bet when you couldn't make a bet, you know, or now you want to smoke pot or back then when it was less easy to acquire in a legal store, there was always was that. And I wasn't the first one. Like I didn't make this shit up. There's a litany of fucking tough Jews from Squirrel Hill that made a shit ton of money selling weed and have all done serious prison time. Like I'm not, I'm literally, I did not start this at all. I did not like start this phenomenon. I might be the first person to have ever called attention to it perhaps, but this is not, this is not something that's new, you know? And then, and going back to it, the streets are a meritocracy. Okay. In a lot of ways, you can be from a really, really disadvantaged background and that can definitely shape you being a tough person, but in the end, it's not about how, and again, like boomers have the hardest time with this shit or people with boomer adjacent values. They're like, if you were raised well, then you can never be like an authentic, like crook. You're just a scumbag. You know what I mean? Like you're just a, a poser or a scumbag. That's not true in the streets. It's about um, how you carry yourself. Like, do you show respect and get respect? Are you tough? Like when you respond to a confrontation, do you back up personally, no matter who's in front of you? And really the only thing that matters in the context of mandatory minimums and the war on drugs is, uh, can you do time and not snitch? Because that's really like throw all the other shit out. The only thing back in the day when people would do like two year prison sentences for bank robberies and stuff like that you could be known as a tough guy because guys would like chop a hundred guys up and throw them in the sewer. That doesn't make you fucking tough. That makes you dangerous. There are plenty of guys around who are dangerous. I never said I was a dangerous person. In fact, I think I'm one of the least dangerous people you'll ever meet in your life. That doesn't make you tough. That just means that you're fucking crazy. You're lethal. You're a threat. The only thing that makes you tough in the context of mandatory minimum sentencing is when you inevitably get caught, are you going to shut the fuck up and do your time like a man? Period. So in that sense, I am tough. You know, because I, 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 I defy anyone else to go do what I just did. You won't. I was going to say too. I, I, I'm interested in the uh, the sort of hip hop connection because when you were when you were talking about the whole uh, Jewish mobster angle aesthetic and hip hop, I was thinking there, there's been like whole subcultures in hip hop uh, devoted to that thing: necro, nonfiction, ill bill, stuff like that. And we, and we grew up in Squirrel Hill listening to that shit when we were there. Was like that's what people understand. There was a whole world in our neighborhood that you know in that late '90s kids era where we were like tagging doing graffiti, you know, breaking into fucking houses, getting into fistfights, trying to hook up with girls, smoking a lot of weed on the street, freestyling and learning how to rap. And we were listening to Necro, nonfiction. I mean, dude, I remember when I opened for nonfiction at the TLA in Philly and I fucking met. Well, you before. opened for nonfiction. Wait, I, I need to hear about that. <laughs> I opened for nonfiction in, um, in the, I opened for nonfiction in the Beat Nuts in 2002 or 2003 at the TLA on South street in Philadelphia, when I was in college at temple, where I also was chilling with a crew of tough Jews that sold a fuck ton of weed and made a lot of money and were real ass people. But I don't know. I mean, we, we were at that point, we were one of the better underground up and coming. We were the parts of speech. I founded the deadly scribes in Pittsburgh. And then me and a couple other guys, uh, ambushed Tim Brindle and verbal tech Cedric Hardy founded the parts of speech in Philadelphia. And we were like an underground hip hop crew. We won a lot of battles. We had a really great live show. We had good lyrics and um, 
we had a lot and we also had a lot of fans because we went to temple so we had like a built-in fan base of a couple hundred hip-hop heads at temple so we were we were getting a lot of really good opening acts like local support for like bigger tours coming in they were getting four five six seven eight nine hundred a thousand people or whatever packing those mid-size you know the trocadero back when it was open and um yeah and the tla on which was i guess on fifth or fourth and south it's been so long but yeah no i um we went there and we opened for the uh we opened for the beat nuts and nonfiction. And I remember being um backstage or whatever and meeting Ill Bill, you know, for the first time and just being like, yo, dude, like you don't understand, man. Like, like this is like I mean, for me, like there are more famous rappers, but for me, I was like, this is this is it, dude. Because we would all listen to black helicopters and shit like that while we were going to go do dirt and squirrel Hill, because we knew, you know, squirrel Hill was more upscale than Canarsie, but it's all the same thing, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's when you're an ethnic minority in a city and you're attracted to the street life and hip hop and you do your thing, you're definitely going to look for those role models that you see in that. And then you can see after me and not that he was in any way, a gangster rapper or whatever, but Mac Miller kind of, Everything I just described, Mac Miller was, what, 13, 14 years younger than me or 11 years, something substantially younger than me, one generation down. Him and all of his friends did the exact same shit, but in their own way and blew the fuck up off of it. And what they were portraying to people was the Squirrel Hill lifestyle. Where like dudes are hyper privileged, but they fucking party the fuck out, do mad drugs, smoke mad weed, super hip hopped out, dress really good, you know, always with some girls. Like that was like we weren't nerds, you know. Like we we lived in a nice neighborhood, but we weren't nerds. We were fucking wild kids. So uh, let's get into uh, how, how did you eventually get these uh, charges related to. Uh, marijuana. And, and also, I guess we should start with how'd you get into the marijuana game? Well, I mean, I, I, it was so ubiquitous as a kid growing up around me, everyone smoked weed. So many people sold weed all my entire childhood just revolved around getting weed. I mean, I was like, I was the fuck, look, I was a fucking weed head. Not that you can be an addict. You know what I mean? Like I was definitely like a, a weed addict to the extent that I really wanted to be fucking high all the time from like the age of like 11 or 12 on. And me and my friends, I was like, we would spend all day in the pre-internet era, you know, and you had to like page people to pay phones and shit, sourcing weed, just trying to fucking find weed, trying to scrounge up enough money to go get a nick, like literally a nickel bag, a $5 bag of shitty weed. We would call it five on the fist. Everyone would bring $1 to fucking school and then fucking, or, or a buck 25 and one dude would bring a blunt. You know what I mean? And then everyone would throw down and smoke. So it's like, you know, that with that environment where we were just like, I went to Taylor Alderdice, same school was Khalifa went to after me, same school Mac Miller went to after me. It was a crazy school, man. Like we would leave all the time. We'd never be in school. We'd just leave and kind of roam around the city all day. And we would smoke outside at lunch every single day. And we would cipher and people would just bring their weed and whatnot it was just such a part of my life, you know? And then that, like I said, that, that whole, the mobster angle kind of starts there because it really was like kids. I always describe it as kids meets Goodfellas or like, you know, or like, you know, or like you know, kids or Mac Miller's mixtape kids meets Goodfellas because you would be like out here doing that, like on your street urchin shit. And then you see the older guys cruise by 
in the neighborhood who are making stupid money selling weed, like really making good, good money. And this was in the nineties too, where like you could, you know, double, triple your money off weed. The profit margins were fucking insane. So there were guys, you know, there were guys who were in their late teens, early twenties who were making neurosurgeon or better money living the life of fucking Riley in squirrel Hill. You know what I mean? Had all the girls, nice cars. They get into shit with their parents. They'd be like, fuck you. I'll just rent my own luxury apartment in like shady side or downtown or whatever. Like that is so seductive when you're a young rebellious teenager and you're already into subculture that, and it's all intertwined because a lot of times those guys would be the guys who would fund a record label or put up promotional money for a show. And then that also dovetails into the rave scene because I used to go to a lot of the old school, like like real raves, like the illegal bangers, like in the strip before all those spots became gentrified apartment buildings where they were like, you know, crazy jungle parties with hip hop guests too. I remember seeing like DJ craze and like the executioners like rock Raider and like Mr. Sinister and like all those dudes, like in the crane building in the strip in the nineties. And all those parties were thrown by dudes that were like big time drug dealers you know, like they were all getting stupid money. So this is all just like, you know, this is all around you and you realize it's there. I actually wasn't even into it for a long time. I would buy some here, resell it. Like, I mean, I, like anybody, it was almost like you sold weed as like a hobby because it was what everyone else did. I would sit at the benches by the post office and sell fucking nickel bags with my friends and shit. Kids would pull up from the suburbs, literally, because they knew you could score weed in Squirrel Hill before cell phones or whatever. People just had it where you'd work off the pay phones and eat in park and just sit there all night in the smoking section. It wasn't like I'd need it. But again, I was I had a privileged background. I didn't need to do it. It was I went away to school and then I met other Jewish guys in Philly who were even you know crazier and deeper in the game because Philly's a bigger city. And I this is when it got kind of like crazy because I was next to them all the time and I was watching them. I tell people all the time I spent a lot of time holding umbrellas in the rain. Like I was always the young guy who was like, yo, kid, come on. Yo, young bull, take a ride with me real quick. Like, what are we going to do? I would got to drop off 50 pounds to this guy. But like afterwards, like, oh, we'll go to uh, we'll go to like Morton's or Roos Chris or whatever and hit the strip club. I'd be like, all right, bet. Yeah, I'm in. And, you know, and you'd like see how this shit happened and like understand and analyze and kind of just keep soaking up game. I think it honestly actually helped me that I didn't actually hit the ground with two feet in it until I was in my 20s, because while a lot of people had a head start on me. I got to watch a lot of really big dudes do it and just internalize the lessons about how to move and how not to move. And I also shored up a lot of connects that would help me later on in my career because people knew that when I was friends with them, there wasn't an ulterior financial motive to start. Like I wasn't friends with this guy because he could get me weed or buy things for me or whatever. I was friends with them because I liked them as people and they liked me. It was about like integrity and respect and loyalty and honor and friendship and brotherhood. It wasn't about getting over. So I really got serious about it in Philly. Um, I had toured Australia and I like broke even. So I like didn't, you know, like I needed money when I came home because I was touring around the world at that point, but I was flipping like the same forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, and I was gone seven and a half months a year, and it just wasn't, you know, I, I it was a dope. But you you were touring with the hip hop stuff or the yeah 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 I was touring with the hip hop stuff. 
Cause I was like, I've been in like scribble jam and a bunch of like big freestyle battles. And I'd done really well in those. And I got, you know, like got me like, you know, smidgen of notoriety where I could get out there and start opening for people and doing tours. It certainly never got as big as I wanted to be because I would have rather have done that than sold weed, to be honest with you. But I milked it or I did the most I possibly could with it. I mean, I went all around the world. I went all around the country. I had a lot of great experiences and I did make it a living for about ah, like what, four or five years or so. But it just got to the point where it was diminishing returns, particularly when people stop now. See, now people buy CDs, tapes and vinyl again out of like an affinity, but people forget 15, 20 years ago, people stopped buying all those things overnight. And that like destroyed my business model because for me to make money on some true DIY shit, I had to double up off of merch sales. Like the merch sales were as important as what I got paid for the show. Like getting paid for the show would almost just get you there, you know, comp your gas or whatever, or comp your tickets and then, or your hotel but then you would make all your money selling merch. And that was really viable for a long time because on DIY shit, people know that whether you're punk rock, hip hop, metal, a DJ, whatever. And they buy all your merch coming through from town to town or even overseas, even more, you can charge double or triple on it. When that died down, I needed to make money like yesterday. And the one thing I I'd never, like I hadn't done it in a while and I hadn't done it like seriously where I was like, okay, this is all I'm going to fucking do. So I got five eighths of an ounce. That's all I had the money for to start. And I started and I went to the Muslim store on 40th street and I got these little glass butterfly jars and I bagged up like 0.7s or jarred up 0.7s or 0.8s of really good weed. That's what I had really good stuff. It was called sage sativa, Afghani, like indica hybrid or something. And, um, I literally sat on my stoop of my apartment where I lived with my girlfriend and I trapped. I just, people would hit my shitty flip phone and I would run out and serve them or I'd meet them in the hallway. And I did this every day, read up religiously, read up religiously every day, every day, every day, sold the 0.7s, 0.8s for 20, hand to hand, no deals. I was around 24 hours, day or night, 365, whatever. At the end of every night, I would deposit the money in my PNC bank account, um, because I honestly didn't even know what else to do with it. And I didn't want it around. It just seemed like a lot of money at the time, which is like hilarious later on when I, when I really saw what a lot of money looked like. Yeah. I'd be so blase about having like more money than most people made in their fucking lives, like on the floor, like looking at it in some like dusty fucking garage somewhere. But at that point, you know, having this couple hundred bucks at the end of the night felt like I was like, Oh, so I deposited it. And at the end of the night, I remember besides what I needed to live, And at the end, I remember at the end of a month, I just decided to check my bank account. I hadn't checked it in 30 days. I just was like, okay, let me see what I did here in a month besides what I spent. And there was like $11,000 in the account. Like it was like, and I had spent money too. So I probably made like 15 grand that month. And this was like 2005. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. This is, this is, it felt like the whole universe had opened for me because I'd seen everyone else do it. And I'd run errands for these guys and I'd ridden with these guys and I'd like watch the larger transactions, but you don't get there immediately. You know, you got to like reverse engineer. So then I, I'm like, I'm living in university city in West Philly. And I'm like, okay, now I fucking get it. And it worked. And I was off to the races. 
But, you know, there were setbacks because a corrupt uh, detective squad started targeting us as a crew, like literally targeting like Jewish pot dealers. And they were sticking guys up and then like flipping them and turning them into rats and stuff got really, really hot. Somebody got indicted out of state and they fled the country. Like it was, you know, I started seeing early on and it's funny because I should have learned the lesson that up top, it's really bad. You know, like where I was, it felt stressful. But like that next level up, three, four, five levels up, like it's hectic. Like people get killed. People go to prison all the time. People turn on each other. I moved back to Pittsburgh. Me and my my girl, we like almost fled Philly just to get the fuck out of there because it was so hot. I came back to Pittsburgh with a thousand dollars. That's all I had left. And every intention of doing something else with my life, I started taking my LSATs to go to law school. I worked a minimum wage freight entry billing job at my dad's company. We were super broke. She was working at Starbucks. We were like living off leftovers from my parents. We had like barely enough money to afford the apartment that we were staying in. Um, And, you know, immediately that voice started creeping back in my head where it was like, dude, you should start selling weed again. You know, like you, you should do this. So I built the business back up painstakingly from that, from $1,000 all through law school. I tried to quit again when I made the commercial and took the bar. So I was like, all right, again, like, but the commercial was almost too successful. So I fled the profession and got back to trapping. And that's where I met my downstairs neighbor, Dale, the crazy left-wing terrorist ex steel worker from the Mon Valley citizens council. I, I was going to ask about that. What's the, what's the story on him exactly? <laughs> well, I mean, what isn't the story? I mean, he was, he was just this like legendary figure, you know, he was one of those guys that, he would tell you stories and you'd think they're absolute bullshit. And then you would realize later that they were true, that he was just that fucking nuts. So he was like a hippie outlaw steel worker guy who grew up in Confluence PA and West Mifflin. And um, he, uh, he, his dad owned a tavern in West Mifflin and he had, I mean, dude, even the stories I have, from, I'm like the last repository of this because like his brother, Tim died and his son, Gary passed before he did. So like, I know, I feel privileged. I know the stories of Dale's childhood, like the things that went down or whatever that made this guy such a fucking maniac. Do you want a couple, you want you want a couple Dale anecdotes just to, okay. That, that would be great. Okay, so his dad was this guy named Whitey Wharton, and he owned a tavern in the Mon, I think in West Mifflin. I think it was called like Whitey's or something like that. Great name for a fucking Ginzer bar in the 50s in Pittsburgh. Whitey's. <laughs> but, um, you know, and this was back when the Mon Valley was just this like rollicking steel town, again, filled with like mobsters and fucking like corrupt cops and, you know, everyone gambling rampantly, just all the whorehouses, like the whole nine. And uh, there was this guy um, who, who came in to uh, there's there, there were there were women, you know, who would hang out at Whitey's who were like women of the night, but like pro-am basically like they were still married, but they would like fuck other guys for money, which now is like actually like not that crazy of a prospect. But in the, you know, in the 50s or whatever, this was like, fuck, whoa, you know. And their husbands would always be like chasing them around town again, pre cell phones, you know, the wives would be like jumping off with other dudes to party and fuck. And the husband would be like hunting the wife through the various like underworld taverns of the Mon Valley. So one time, um, I think Dale was like a kid and he was in the bar with his dad and his dad was like tending the bar or whatever. And Dale was helping. And this guy comes in with a fucking double barreled shotgun, you know, super huge yins energy, you know, like little like, 
pork pie if the door he's like who here's been fucking my wife he's like i got a shotgun bill i got to, a double barrel for every son of a bitch here he's been fucking my wife like while in the fuck out and some guy turns around from the bar next to dale and yells at him he goes hey buddy he's like if you want to hit every guy in here he's been fucking your wife you should have brought a six shooter he's like maybe two he was like maybe maybe I mean, it was like the type of way like Dale grew up another time. His dad, I guess, fucked someone's wife recurring theme for Dale. Um, and uh, the guy threatened the dad. He said he was coming down to the tavern and Dale and his brother lived. I guess their house was like between where this guy lived and the tavern. So literally like that movie, the fucking Patriot Dale's dad on a landline calls him and his brother. And he's like, boys arm up go to the woods, take position behind a tree. When this guy's like Buick Skylark comes like comes around the bend, he's like, just shoot him, just light him the fuck up. And they were like 16 and 12 and they did it. They literally grabbed shotguns and rifles, went to the woods, posted up to wait for the cuckold to come down the thing. And they knew the guy's car driving fast as fuck with the big headlights. I was trying to get to the bar to kick the dad's ass. And they just shot the guy's car up. I mean, they didn't kill him, but that was just by luck. Like they weren't not trying to kill him. They literally ambushed the guy's car with live ammo and shot him off the fucking road. Cause this was, you know, the Mon Valley was lawless as fuck. And that's another thing, I guess, if you're not from Pittsburgh, people don't realize now Pittsburgh has become lame, but I mean, you know, if you're from Pittsburgh, like, I mean, the amount of shit you can get could, I mean, I got away with it for a long time till I didn't, but the amount of shit that one could get away with here is just like, you know, it, it so far exceeds what you think you could get away with in another city. So Dale then becomes a steel worker, gets laid off, becomes kind of like a left wing, like avenging angel terrorist where he's like, you know, trying to kidnap steel execs and throwing skunk oil bombs at like they're going to upscale weddings, like skunk oil bombing like their families. And like he blew the doors off a melon bank like he they're barricading themselves in churches with like rifles saying like we're not surrendering this territory unless like our demands are met for the families of these people to be fed. And he did all this for a long time. And then, uh, you know, that kind of petered out into freebasing. And then he became like a total crackhead and was literally living in a van down by the fucking river. And um, when I met him, he was like the putative superintendent of our, you know, whacked up apartment house and friendship, which is like, you know, he just like did like took out the trash like once a month or whatever. And like they couldn't evict him. And he had he controlled the basement apartment and just sat outside fucking blast and skinnered in the stones and Zeppelin and smoking swag. So he knew I had good weed. You know, he had a cane. He was this giant guy, but he was like an old Viking who like lost his leg in a battle. And he's like hunched over. And and that, I was going to say, that's something Pittsburgh's good for. There's all kinds of characters you meet here. Oh, the are sort of like the, local legends. You know? Yeah, no, Dale, Dale was a fucking, Dale was a local legend. I mean, he had been a DJ. He was called the Rockin' Doctor. That was his DJ name. You know, like he, he was, he is, he was a fucking he, he had like a company that did like catering on boats or whatever, like on the Mon. Like he was, he was a fucking wild guy. He dove off the, um, the Rachel Carson or the Andy Warhol. One of those ones going from the North side to downtown, he was leaving a Pink Floyd concert in the seventies. He was tripping balls and he just went right off the fucking bridge into the river and lived. 
Like he was, he, he volunteered for Vietnam instead of getting drafted threw himself a party, thought better of it, and then just dodged the draft and didn't get in trouble. Wow. Yeah. So, so so I, I just knew him as this like shot out old dude who lived underneath me in, in this apartment. Cause it was basically like we lived together. I mean, we had just a floor of a house separating us. So like, I mean, we could smell his disgusting food and his like uh, red man rolled up cigarettes and like, you know, always, you know, but he's like, pow, pow, pow. he's like, Dan, get down here, man. And I came down, like barely, he talked like Randy Savage too. I mean, he was like, and, he, and at this point I barely knew him. He's like, Hey man, he's like, listen, I smell the pot you got up there. It's fucking incredible brother. I can tell. And I was like, I mean, I was trying to be cagey. Like, ah, maybe I was like, he's like, shut the fuck up. I know you got pot. I see you selling pot to people all the time. It's all right, dude. He's like, I just want some pot, man. I want some good pot, bro. Like, I know my pot's not that good, man. Come on. You know, so like I left him an ounce. He sold it. Left him an ounce. Sold it. Left him an ounce. Sold it. And then it was like, it really was like the montage in a fucking, you know, drug dealing movie. It was like before long, like that was a full-fledged store. All the customers were getting routed there. My customer base was exploding because I had someone who could sit there and like do it all day. Cause I was like going to law school and then just like working, like trapping out of my hallway. I'd literally like come out of my hallway at like three o'clock in the morning and sell someone like a quarter, like on my laptop, like trying to read, you know what I mean? Like, again, is that gangster? No. Am I taking huge risks all the time that like a person who wasn't ballsy or tough wouldn't take? So yeah, I- yeah. I was going to ask, you know, I don't think people realize the the whole, uh, you know, trapping game. It can actually be a lot more difficult than people think. I've, I've known people who used to sell weed and they would they would do the little tricks uh, to get away with things like they would they would, uh, you know, I, I remember some people would, uh, I, I knew a dealer who would fuck people over by uh, they would put the hairspray. They would do a hairspray trick to make it uh, seem like it, it weighed more than it was. Right. And then that got the people caught on to that and they found out about it through other people and then no one wanted to buy from them anymore. So it's like, right. it's a game where you have to like, you it's, know, it's, you don't want to screw people over too much, you know? No, I mean, I didn't screw people over at all. That was my thing. I did really honest business and I was really accountable. I mean, most people who do this shit, again, they're not, they don't look, I looked at it like organized crime. Like even when I was humble and I wasn't making any money, I was like, okay, I got this many bets to book today. Okay. I got this much weed to sell. I'm going to meet you exactly when I say I'm going to meet you. I'm going to have exactly what I say I'm going to have. Anyone hits me up. I'm ready for it. And because of that, I was able to basically like reverse engineer a large scale operation because instead of selling large amounts to a few customers, I just onboarded like every small customer on the east side of the city. I started seeing them. And then when I had the store, I really had the ability to just go get customers and not have to be there, which increased, you know, then I'm like a whale with my mouth open, just scooping plankton. And all the big guys, they're worried about selling pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, whatever to people. They're not worried about like a guy scooping a cut customer. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to do that. They're partying all night and like, you know, partying with strippers and hookers and shit, or if they got girlfriends, they're taking them to like Vegas and Miami. Like they don't, you know, they're spending their money. I'm saving every penny I have humbly, not showing what I'm doing at all. And just attempting to build my business, like literally eighth by eighth, cut by cut as much as I could, because I realized that you could make more money off a couple cuts than you could off of selling a pound. So, you know, break down everything, see everyone work 17 hours a day, seven days a week, 
and just create this like durable foundation. So that's what I had. So I became like a player in the city. Everyone else would be like, I sell like this many pounds a week, this many pounds a month. I'd be like, I don't know how many pounds a week or month I sell, but all I know is I make more money than all you guys. You know? So like I, so then what happened was they all taxed the shit. Like people, Pittsburgh was known as like a dumping ground for shitty weed. And also people here don't really want to pay what good weed actually costs even to this day, even on the black market. So it's a really regressive marketplace with a lot of competition. Like everyone hustles because it's also a poor town, black, white, whatever. People here don't have a lot of money. So a lot of guys hustle. You know, like it's not, you can go to a bigger city and actually have an easier time selling weed because the city has an abundance of good jobs. And there's not like these ingrained cultures where you're going to have like a Polish kid from Polish Hill who hustles or an Italian kid from Bloomfield or a Greek kid from Youngstown or whatever. You know, it's not like that. Whereas here it is everyone fucking hustles. So you're always like bumping heads with people over customers, over territory and over pricing. But because I had the customer base of the store, I was able to not charge as much money on wholesale. I wasn't trying to kill people, like tax like three, four, five points a P. I would just charge like two points, a point, a buck fifty, whatever. I wasn't as greedy. So it again, it enabled me to onboard a lot of business very quickly from people in a way that they couldn't because their entire economic model was predicated on juicing people for the absolute most that they could. These guys were getting a box, like a hundred pounds, and trying to make like 50, 60 racks off a box, which was like I would get a box and make 10K and not give a fuck because I had that store pumping all the time. So it was. For me, it was just adding money on top of money. It wasn't my be-all, end-all. So I could flip these guys into my customers. So then what what leads you to getting out of being a, a defense attorney? And also, uh, how do you get caught with uh, this weed game? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I, I remember your original question. It's just this, like, my story is super complicated. It's like, there's no, like, quick answers. And I apologize for that. It's really, there's a lot of nuance and shit. No, I, I love the nuance and I love the details here. Yeah. So, like... And also for your own edification, when you're done, when I'm done, I'm going to send you a, I do this to everyone. I do a podcast for, it doesn't like, I can't, it it verifies. I would say 95% of what I said, like I'll literally, it's just going to be like photos of me, old videos, like documents, whatever, where like pretty much almost every contention point I made, like you can like reference the photo or the article and be like, okay, yeah, this dude's absolutely telling the truth about this shit. Because that's honestly why I've been successful in the podcast too, is because I've done this for everyone because I realize my story is fucking insane. And a lot of people will be like, okay, you have to be making some of this up, you know, or they, people are haters and they're like, you're making some of this up. But everyone like Thaddeus, like all those other people, I hit them with all this shit without them even asking. Because I was just like, here, look, I can literally just take a look at these 30 photos and videos and documents. And they're always like, holy shit. They're like, wow, fuck. But anyways, I'm building up, I'm building up, I'm building up. By this point, I've abandoned law because what happened is the commercial was too successful. It, I, I, I over-succeeded. I became. And I, I guess in some way, it, it ultimately could have hurt some of your your clients. The commercial, it, right? It did. It was. I I saw that it had the potential to hurt my clients. Now I'm not going to claim that any judge or prosecutor um, was unfair to my clients uh, or whatever. I saw the potentiality for it happening soon because they didn't like me. I, I, so I'm not, look, as much as I dislike the criminal justice establishment, again, I want, I, I speak the truth as best as I can remember it. There was never an instance in which I, a client of mine 
well, I can be like that judge or that prosecutor fucked my client because of me. But I just felt like it was coming because I could tell the animus towards me from not all, but some of them, some of them thought it was cool, but most of them fucking hated it. And I could tell that this wasn't going to end well. And I was just going to hurt other people. And I like, look, like I'm about a buck or whatever, but like, I'm not, again, I'm not out here to hurt anybody. Like that's why I'm not a gangster. I don't put guns to people's heads. I don't extort people, whatever, you know, I'm tough. I'm not violent. So I didn't want to hurt my clients either. I wanted to, I, when I became a lawyer, I didn't become a lawyer to become like a cartoonish sleazy lawyer. I never double dipped. I never, you know, you sold drugs to my clients or weed. No, well, I only sold weed. I only sold weed to my client, do any of that shit. I wanted to honestly just be a successful defense attorney and do my level best for people. But I realized one temperamentally and characterologically, I really wasn't fit to it. You know, I just wasn't organized enough. And like, it just wasn't me. And two, that, yeah, I was a walking prejudice for my clients potentially. And if that had happened, I'd have been in trouble. The third thing that did happen was, okay, so I never sold, this is going to sound silly. I never sold drugs to my clients, but I definitely represented people I sold drugs to. (laughs) If that, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is like my boys who were also my customers, some of them would get in trouble and they would hit me up and I would be basically honor bound by friendship to represent them for free. Oh, pro bono. Pro bono. So like by the end I was doing like 40,000 plus 50,000 plus a year of free work for relatives, friends, other street guys, street adjacent people, whatever. And I just got to the point where I was just like, dude, this is fucking like killing me, man. Like I fucking hate being down here, you know, like, yeah, I was, and again, like they didn't like me. I was getting like held in contempt for shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like this just had to go. So I like ran away from the profession as fast as I could and just went right back into selling weed quadruple time, built it up to the point where I had onboarded enough wholesale customers that I had like two parallel operations going again. This is where like that mobster shit comes in because now I have like a whole organized thing happening where I have like multiple people in my crew. I got like lieutenants, I got shift supervisors and managers for the store. I got workers. I got people whose jobs there to unload the trucks. Like it's becoming big. We have multiple we have like secret offices all over the place that are just apartments, but like, they're not laid out like for people to live in. They're you laid out a bit of a kingpin. <laughs> yes. We put the, we, we, we called, you know, we were the orange box boys. Like that was our, we were the orange box crew. Cause we had those rigid orange contractor boxes and we would go into other people's apartment buildings, not their actual homes. Although sometimes we would pay people to store them in their homes. We'd be like, you know, just put one of these in your basement. We'll pay your rent. But like, we would also just uh, get the common area key from someone and then pay them money, just less money. And we would go into the common area, basically disguised as maintenance guys, which isn't that hard if you're like a white guy in Pittsburgh, just kind of like look disheveled, you know what I mean? Like wear an old hoodie. And we would bolt them into the basement floors of random English, like lighthouse. You cut out there for a second. You said you would bolt them into the floors. Could you repeat that? Like the common areas of other people's apartment houses throughout the city. And we would just need the front door key then. We didn't need like the the key to anyone's apartment. It would just be down in like, because like Pittsburgh apartment buildings are like the fucking like tales from the crypt. There's always like these like weird unused rooms like by the boiler no one goes into that are like permanently in darkness. There's rooms where a light bulb hasn't been switched on in fucking 50 years. So we would just find these rooms 
bolt the orange boxes into the floor, like strip the screws. So they were hard as fuck to pull out, throw locks on them. And then, you know, every, I called it collecting doors. Every door you collected, you could store another hundred pounds. And these were good because one, nobody would know they were there except the one person. Two, even if you did get ripped off, like, all right, getting ripped off sucks. But like, cause like, look, I've opened up a stash spot before and found it completely empty and been like, Oh, I just lost 700 grand. Like that's, that's happened to me before that happened to me in Pittsburgh before. Um, that's a lot better than having the cops take it because when the cops take it, then charges follow if they can attribute it to anybody. So by dispersing the shit again, cause again, you know, I'm not a fucking crazy killer. Like I'm not going to hunt you down and kill you. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, I will defend myself if you come at me by any means that I have at my disposal, but like, I'm not like running around fucking hurting people. Like that's not the name of the game, man. You're just going to go to prison. I mean, I went to prison even without hurting people. Imagine, imagine how much trouble I'd have been in if I had fucking like run around, like shot at people over fucking like weed debts or ripoffs. So we, yeah, I have this whole thing going now. It's a whole operation going. And it really is like super, it's mob shit, dude, super organized. There's like drop days. There's like, you know, it, it's, it requires, it's more than a full-time job. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a fucking company. It really is. It is a, it is a, a fucking company, op, a sub Rosa company operating in the middle of the city, retail, wholesale, large scale, small scale, 24, seven, 365 it gets to the point where I finally kind of pushed the boulder all the way up to the hill and it hasn't rolled on me. So now it's over the other side and I got momentum. And now it's like, I broke through at a certain point and I started just getting everybody, like everyone around that I could get, I was getting all the big wholesale guys were coming over to me because I was only charging very, very little per pound. I think at a certain, so what happened was at a certain point, I got the Asian ends, which are like the white golds, the Bubba's and the, um, the, uh, platinums. And they're like really dialed in connoisseurs wouldn't like them, but for Pittsburgh, Western PA, the price point and quality was incredible. It matched like perfectly. And, um, I would just get them for 16, sell them for 17, get them for 17, sell them for 18, get them for 18, sell them for 19 flat pricing, unitary pricing scheme. Cause mostly with weed, what happens is if some guy buys one pound off of you, you know, a lot of times people try and hit them for four five, six, seven, eight, nine points, however much they can get. If someone's buying a hundred pounds off of you, then you, you know, you obviously, if you're lucky enough to consummate a deal in cashless Pittsburgh, like of that scale, you're cutting your tax down to nothing. For me, if you bought one pound off me, I charge you a hundred. If you bought a hundred pounds off me, I charge you a hundred per pound. I never changed my pricing scheme. And I always had the stuff at the right price because of that. So people were literally buying off of me to prevent me from selling them into the city because then they know their customers would get them for cheaper than what they were going to charge their customers. I I actually knew people, they didn't do that with, when I was in college, I knew people that would do that, but it wasn't with weed. It was with, of all things, cigarettes. I knew people that would literally go to an Indian reservation in New York and they would pick up cigarettes cheap there and then sell them right. for like a dollar more. But then there were other people that tried to do that and they'd sell it for like five dollars more. And, you yeah. know, yeah. So there's there's a bunch of hustles like that that go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I mean, it's just this basic economics. You know, if you it, at wholesale, basically, I gave everyone the wholesale number and then my model was predicated on an enormous amount of volume, <laughs> which was a mistake for me, honestly, uh, strategically, because that opened me up to uh, federal prosecution. 
you know, I just didn't think that would ever happen because the reason that it was so hard to sell weed and that there was so much competition was there was a liberalization of marijuana in America in that 10 year period, you know, from the late aughts up until when I got popped. And even now it just, it just keeps getting, um, you know, easier and easier to get a hold of. So it's harder and harder to sell illicitly because stores are opening up and people can just hop on Instagram, even if they want to buy it on the black market and have their friend mail them pounds or their boy, their friend's friend in college, or even some guy they meet on Instagram that has literal pictures of pounds. You can cash app him money and he will mail pounds to your fucking dormer. I, I was going to ask about that. What do you think about like, get? I mean, it seems like we're getting more liberal about marijuana now, weed. Uh, so I mean, it's funny because I've known dealers that are like, I hope they never legalize it fully because they, they would say to me, well, that, that'll hurt my business. So what do you I mean, make I mean they're, they're bus- they're, the businesses are being hurt. I mean, like, like, like it's not, it's not a question of will it or now I would defy you to find any weed dealer anywhere in California or in an East coast state. I mean, unless you're one of those guys like, you know, like burner who's at the top of the market and owns a brand and has stores. I mean, that's a different, but if you're, a black market person. I mean, I know a lot of big black market guys. I mean, that was my back. I, I have plenty of guys who were my peers or whatever. And I still keep my ear to the streets, even though I'm not involved. Um, just to, you know, I just, I know people and I ask what's going on. Like, what is it like now? And it's, it's horrible. It's horrific. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw the movie ghost dog, but it's kind of like the movie ghost dog where the mafia is like reduced to meeting in the Chinese restaurant. You know, like, it's like, it once was this like mighty thing. Because that's what I always say. I was like, I was like the last kingpin here, you know, the last East Side Squirrel Hill weed boss. I don't, I mean, hey, if there's someone after me, man, wear that crown with pride because I know how hard it is to fucking wear that crown. Only the ones who have done it know, you know. I just don't see it happening now because the game has been reduced to, it's still there. The demand is still there. The problem is that, I mean, if you're trying to get big, is that the game has flattened because of the accessibility of it, even on a large scale, uh, scale illicitly. So like, whereas me, I was basically like a gate for the city where it would all come to me. I'd put a point on it and then let it fall through. You know, like I'd buy it all because I had the money to do so. I could lay out like, you know, enormous sums of money to tie it up. And then I could pick, I knew what people wanted because I was educated in the game. I would catch it. And then I would just let it, I put one point on it and just let it fall through down to everyone else. I don't even think that point is left anymore. You know, like, I think now it's like, now it's like, okay, you can sell 300 pounds at a time. Um, but it's, it, it's much, much harder to do. Like there are still people who do it. Like I'm not, I'm, you know, like I'm not saying that it's, it's over because you never know what people are up to in the underworld. It's a, people have, are infinitely adaptable. But what I'm saying is now there's a hundred people getting three at a time or even 300 people getting one at a time. Whereas before there were one guy getting 300 and then he had five guys who got 60 or one guy that got a hundred and then a bunch of other guys that got 50, you know, like that, that whole, like that whole like large model where like it's like vertically integrated and there's enough money to pay like workers and drivers and houses and stuff like that. Like the, you know, like, like that organized crime style that's gone. It's gone back to how it was back, back in the day where it's just like guys get a little bit, they sell it to people. They know they break it down. You, you try to live on quality, get brand names, whatever. It's just a different game. It ain't what it was, I guess is what I'm saying. So at my height in 2019, 
that was the best I was ever doing. And I was fucking smashing it. I couldn't even keep weed in. And I had acquired a wholesale uh, location with a garage underneath it in Squirrel Hill, in the middle of Squirrel Hill on Cavode Street. And that was my wholesale spot, retail and friendship at Dale's spot. Dale had died in 2017. He got hit by a car trying to reconcile with a sugar baby of his and um, was rendered brain dead and he passed. Um, but the store continued. Like we had the apartment, like a dead guy's name. <laughs> and we're still running the store <laughs> with, with, with a cast of characters. I was just as fucking nutty as Dale, honestly. But uh, the wholesale location, that was a totally different crew. Um, and and the wholesale customers were totally different people. They didn't go to the store. I mean, they might've stopped through the store to go get head stash or like buy some carts or edibles or whatever, or maybe even drop off money. But they were largely there just to, um, you know, to cop wholesale. So the, the, the wholesale location in Squirrel Hill was kind of like a simulacrum of the store where it was like restaurant depot, where the weed would come in and it would literally get stacked up to the ceiling in an empty apartment, like an apartment that was not really set up to be an apartment. And then there'd be like signs above it of what type it was. Cause there's usually only a few types of that stuff. There was a variety of other things, but not that. And then they would literally just cross it off like a wholesale, like butcher, like hash mark, hash mark until all of it was sold. And then they would shut the store down. So it was like, two, three hours every Friday of controlled chaos as every big dog in the city came through to go get their 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 100 plus, and it would all be gone. And then they would shut the fuck down and they would move out. Unbeknownst to us in a steel town, former steel town called Braddock, PA, um, there was a gang there called the SCO gang that was their own vertically in integrated street enterprise, but they were violent and they were what you would call, I mean, they would proudly be want to call, be called gangsters. And, you know, they controlled their territory in Braddock and they sold fentanyl, powder cocaine, crack cocaine, pills, uh, bagged heroin, and they sold weed too. Weed was probably the sixth thing they sold, but it was something they sold. And they were under heavy surveillance uh, from the FBI and the Allegheny County Narcotics Task Force because the local police department was frankly overwhelmed by them. There was just too much, too much activity. And these guys were tough and they knew what the fuck they were doing. And they grew up there their whole life. You couldn't infiltrate them, you know, like you weren't going to be able to get a guy in there, you know, they'd kill him. So um, they, you know, and, and they, these were tough dudes, you know, like they were doing their thing and they had stash houses, lieutenants, runners, the whole nine OGs and they got wiretapped. The feds decided to launch an investigation on them to take them out, like to take out the whole hierarchy, all the soldiers, whatever. So they wiretapped them and um, a guy sold them weed. So they were buying weed off a guy. That guy was an unaffiliated poly substance dealer. He sold everything. Super smart guy, real about his business, not affiliated with any one gang, like a you know personable guy, intelligent. He would just move from crew to crew and just kind of drive around Western PA all day long in an American muscle car with every type of fucking drug under the sun in his trunk and just sell himself. One man army, total opposite of what I was doing. He got wiretapped because he was talking into that wiretap. So now they're out to him. He buys weed off of a guy who buys weed off of us. So the guy who bought weed off of us was not wiretapped, but it didn't matter because he was talking into that wiretap, which if you don't use encrypted apps and you don't throw your phone away, 
you know, immediately after use, once they can start geo tracking you and they, and the, the IMEI number and all that, which is what they did to him. It was curtains. They didn't even need a wiretap because they had enough of him talking. He was only selling weed. So they had enough of him talking into the one guy's wiretap that they were able to figure out who he was, uh, geo track his phone to his hip, get the IMEI number, run that with his J net. And then they followed him to Cavode Street and Squirrel Hill by, I would say, the end of April, early May. And then they set up surveillance there. Um, I don't know if it was static uh, pull cam. I only saw in my discovery like them like in a blacked out car videotaping us or filming us or whatever with uh, with really good cameras. But they were surveilling whether visually or with cameras for several weeks. And they were good. They knew what the fuck they were doing because they're the Allegheny County Police and the FBI. Like they're a lot better at this than, than we are because they've arrested a lot more people than cops we've seen. So they, and that's something I want to tell people, like you think you're slick or whatever, dude, I was a street guy my entire life. I made a shit ton of money. I did not get arrested until I was 39 years old. So, I mean, I'm about as I have about a solid, a track record for doing volume. And I understand I was only selling weed, but I also had some really crazy shit going on, like a fucking store in the middle of the city. So it wasn't like I was, I was as, not low key as you could be and survive. And I survived for a very long time without any police intervention whatsoever. And I was also a criminal defense attorney at one point. So I, I, I have a lot of training about how to look out for stuff or, and, and perceive things, uh, you know, diagnose threats. I did not see them coming. So if I didn't see them coming, you probably won't see them coming. You will probably have no fucking idea. Like they're just going to be in your, you know, they're, they're going to kick your fucking door in one day. That's, and I hate to say that because I don't want anyone to get in trouble, but I just want to be very clear about that to people that like, you see little signs, but you do not realize until it's like, uh, at the end of, um, the usual suspects where he realizes, you know, Kaiser, so say verbal, whatever, you know, it's like, you put it all together. Then you realize you're like, Oh my God, like they've been honest for that long. Like that was them. That was them. That fuck. You don't realize till then. You don't. So then so, go, go on. I want you to say what happens after that. Yeah. So, so they set up on the place. Now they have it dialed in. They know it's Friday. And also he, the wiretap is saying not, we're not wiretapped, but the person who was talking into the wiretap is like, Oh, I'll see you Friday. And then they're, they're triangulating what he's see, what he's saying with what they're seeing and what's happening. And now they know what's up. So they get a warrant to hit the spot and they do it and, you know, they, they do it in a very strategic militaristic military way. They let the re-up come in. They let the fucking weed come off. They let the money go back on the truck. They let the truck leave and then they hit the truck right as it's about to get on the parkway, leaving Squirrel Hill. So all this is happening in my Grand Theft Auto map of my youth, Squirrel Hill. You know what I mean? It's like... I had to be there that day because there was a discrepancy in the money because when you're sending half a ticket out in cash that you have to collect analog from like 17 different people, that shit happens. You know, like you think about it, you got to collect a bag from every guy that buys one to every guy that bought 125. They all have a bag. People are on credit, partial credit, full credit, half front, full front. They're squaring up, they're prepaying and you have to reconcile all this shit down. It's a lot. It's a lot to do over and over and over again, too. It's not like you do this once a month. You're doing this over and over and over and over again. So 
it's just a lot to tie up. It's a lot to have happen. So they, um, they, uh, they, they, they let the truck leave. They pull the truck over. I'm there because I had to sort the money situation. Otherwise I would never have been there. My whole thing was not to be around my whole, I, I knew that I had vulnerabilities based on my notoriety because like people knew that like I was the boss and people would be like, he's just like Jewish mobster who's like the weed boss or whatever. And then they wouldn't realize that I was also the underground rapper battle champ. And I was also the guy from the commercial. Like they wouldn't like, they, 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 they like, like it wouldn't click, which is good for me because until it wasn't. So <laughs> I was there and I was on camera. They filmed me. So that right there, to a certain extent, kind of sealed my fate because then what that plus people ratting on you, that's enough to corroborate, to throw you into the conspiracy. They leave. I'm standing in front of the place. The driver leaves, everyone leaves or whatever. And then, you know, the next thing to do would be to get ready for the people to come for the day. Everything has to get stacked up. So I'm just kind of walking around the apartment, watching that happen. I'm standing in front and just, I'm like, ah, it's a good day. It's Memorial Day Friday. I'd like a barbecue to go to later that day. It was a typical day in my very, very strange life. And I, you know, was, you know, it was again, it was a, you know, typical work day, 17 minutes at the office, going to make like $30,000. You know, it's a nice, nice, nice work week, <laughs> you know, nice, nice, nice week at work. So I, um, I look at my phone at my burner and a call comes in on an encrypted app and I pick up the phone and I'm like, yo, what's up? Cause there's the people who just left. I figured they were going to be like, yo, I left like my a phone there or I left like my belt. I don't know, something, you know, something dumb. You know what I mean? Yo, yo, did you, uh, I forget to tell you this or that. They were like, yo, the driver got pulled. I was like, what? They're like, the driver got pulled. I was like, oh, I mean, terror, like immediate terror. Cause again, tough guy, this, that, whatever, bro. I don't give a fuck how tough you are. The second you hear that you got 400 pounds of something, unless it's like 400 pounds of fucking sugar or tobacco or molasses and a half a million just got hit on the fucking road and not on the road, not two hours from you, not a day from you. Cause that's happened to me before we've lost shit coming across or whatever, you know, bad things have happened. You got time to clear out that, you know, you know, you're like, all right, by the time something happens and they generate the search warrant, it's still going to take them like eight to 10 hours. So like there's enough time to go get food because we got to go get a bunch of guys to sit here and we need to clean this house out thoroughly. And like, we'll be out about two hours before they kick the fucking door. in. I've done that before. I've literally, again, my life was very, very crazy. I've lived that life, like literally been like casually cleaning out a house that I know is going to be hit with a search warrant, but I know I have about a day to do it. Just like, this was not that they pulled this guy over seven fucking blocks from our, our spot. So that tells me a bunch of things immediately, which is one, this was a targeted hit. And that's what I said to the guys on the phone. I was like, I told them not to go through that speed trap, that fucking idiot. And they were like, dude, that wasn't it. They were like, he got hit by like undercovers and like, they jumped out with like fucking like weapons, like on some like Mexican, like narco squad shit. You know, they might've even had their faces covered pre COVID. If I remember correctly, I wasn't there. I just going off of like, this was serious. This wasn't like he got pulled over by one uniformed cop and they searched him or whatever. They knew who he was and they knew to hit him right then. Period. So I, all the blood goes out of my limbs. Like I can't feel like my fingers. I can't feel my fucking toes. Like, I mean, you know, dude, 
my dude, like my fucking dick and nuts, like shrivel up into my fucking abdomen. I'm just like, Oh, cause I know I'm like, this is bad. This is so fucking bad. This is really, really bad. This is really, 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 really bad. And you know, like, look, I've been around it my whole life, but I had never gotten popped before. So, you know, this was a bad one to get hit on. I knew it was bad. I had no idea how bad it was going to be, but I knew that this was really, really, really bad. So I ran into the apartment and I remember like spots were swimming in front of my eyes because of like the blood, just like all getting pulled to my stomach. And I say to the guys in the spot, I'm like, look, we need to get the fuck out of here right now. The driver got pulled. I was like, this is all bad. And they almost resist me. They're like, no, we can't go, man. Like the apartment's in his name. And like, I don't know. They wanted to like hunker down and like wait it out or something. And it became heated to a certain extent because I was like, I don't think that this is, and I don't think I was like, we're fucked. Like, this isn't cool. They're going to come here any minute now. Like we don't have a day. We don't have till tonight. We have a few minutes, an hour, but they're coming. We have to get everything out of here and get the fuck out of here right now. My plan was to bag it all up and throw it over people's fences, load whatever else we could into a car and just drive away as fast as we could. Maybe get into a, a chase in Squirrel Hill, try and lose them in the warren of alleys and side streets that comprise the neighborhood that I do know, like the back of my hand and just keep kind of chucking shit out, like go in a driveway, throw some shit in, on someone's porch, go in a spot, throw some shit in a dumpster or whatever. By the time we get pulled over, maybe we only have like 50 or 60 pounds, 20 or 30, not 400 plus. But they didn't want to do that. Finally, they basically told me, all right, one of us is going to leave. The other is going to stay. One is the apartments in their name. And they're like, you get the fuck out of here. So I left casually because as we had surmised, even in the place talking that um, we were being watched. So if I just come, my fat ass just come tearing out of there, they'd have just tackled me right then. But I didn't come, you know, I came with a backpack. I didn't come with a giant bag for weed. I knocked on the door. So like they didn't know who I was. I was just some random guy. So I walked quietly up the stairs, up the city steps. And then as soon as I got to um, the next street up, I just broke and just ran for my fucking life. And I tore, you know, running between parked cars, like, you know, just, just running, 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 running. I'm running down Hobart, straight shot, basically trying to get to the park. I'm using, you know, staying low, dipping, like trying to use cars to shield me. Cause I figure if I can get into the trees that I I'm not going to get caught right then, because at that point, honestly, all the other shit, the culture, the hip hop, the street guy shit, all that shit fell away. The only thing I really cared about was making a home to my wife. That was it. That was the only thing I really gave a fuck about was getting home to her. I was like, I have to get home to my wife. I have to get home to her because she had told me a million times that this wasn't the move and that something like this was going to happen that you're too big, you're moving too fast. You have manifested this life for yourself that, you know, you attained and achieved, but like at what cost, and this is going to affect us really negatively soon. And you just don't see it because you're blinded by the money and the power you have. And I was thinking all this while I was running and I just kept repeating to myself over and over again, like, you're not getting arrested today. You're going to make it home. You're not getting arrested today. You're going to make it home. And I made it into the trees. I literally fell down the side of the hill, pick myself up. My legs are like punctured off a rock and my burners lighting up. I'm looking, I got like a, a sticky note on the back of my phone under the case. I called it like the dead man sheet and it has, or the suicide sheet. And it has 
everyone's actual phone numbers for like their wives, girlfriends, moms, sisters, whatever, the people you would have to call if someone died or got popped. So like I'm fishing that out of my phone and then my other phone rings and I pick up the phone and it's a call from the spot. And I'm literally like, hello. And it's on an open line too, not encrypted. So like it was, I could tell they were panicking. They didn't even have time to get into an encrypted app to call it up. They're just like, and I'm like, hello. And I just hear they're here. And I'm like, Oh, fuck. Cause they already got the money. Now they got the weed and that's, that's for Pittsburgh. That's a lot of weed. I knew that this wasn't going to go well. So I literally just said, all right, well, I'll get you out. You know, I'm coming for you. Like, I'm not going to leave you, you know? And I just hear, see ya. And the line cuts and I could hear in the background, them starting to come in. Like, <laughs> like I could literally, you know, they were, they had they're, they're kicking down the doors. Yeah, they're coming. I mean, they, I think they basically are like, if you do not open up right the fuck now, we're kicking down the doors. So like they're, they're coming. They're, they're coming. They're, 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 they're there. You know, they're, they're, they're filtering into the various entrances of the place. Like, uh, like almost like the end of like Leon, the professional, but non-lethally and almost lethally, because from what I hear initially, they literally kicked down the wrong door and went into the adjacent apartment and like got a young woman showering to start. Like there was like a woman in her mid twenties taking a shower in the middle of the day. And all of a sudden there's like guys in like flak vests and shit with like AR 15s and like, you know, just aimed at her with like a beam. And then she's like, like, Oh shit. So like he probably, the people probably saw them all filtering around the place, you know, for a few minutes before they even figured out like what entrance to go into. But at that point, I knew I was fucked. I did not understand how fucked I was yet. It actually turned out to be way worse than I thought, <laughs> which is sad. Um, we didn't know about the SCO gang or the guy, you know, the guys in Braddock. We didn't know about the feds or any of that. We had no idea why this happened. It was just like, again, like you're a soldier at war and a fucking missile hits your bunker. You're just like, you don't know who fired it. You just know everyone got blown up and I ran out like on fire and like I'm all charred, but I'm still alive. That's what it felt like. I can't describe to you like the feeling of fear, you know, like of that you were just there and they're there now. And like, if this is bad, this isn't, this isn't like, Oh, they caught 20, 30 pounds or like some guy got pulled over and like everyone could just throw their phone out, stay low for like a day or whatever, you know, whatever, or even a hundred pounds, something like that. No, this is, this is coming. You know, this, this feels, this feels a lot worse. So I make it back to my wife. We basically like go on the run inside the city because I assume I'm getting arrested any second now, but uh, I have a responsibility to get everyone out of jail and get everyone representation. So I do so I bail everyone out and I take a hotel suite downtown to kind of serve as like a mobile command center. Cause I figured they were just going to raid my house, but I needed to get everyone out before I got arrested. I still had an obligation to people. And uh, when people started getting out, I started looking at the, uh, the the paperwork for the search warrant, and I saw that it was federal. And that's when I was really like, I mean, that's the part of the movie where everyone's just like, like, you know, you, you know, you're fucked. If there was a narrator, then it would be like federal. I knew we were fucked. This is bad because the feds. You know, and again, I was so incredulous. I was on because I had a legal team too. I had, a, you know, again back to the whole 
organized crime angle. I had house counsel. We had our own team of lawyers that 100% knew that we existed as an organization, everyone who was in the organization, and that like, you know, like when people would catch cases, they would, they would rep the people. So I'm on the phone with like the legal team and I'm basically like, all right, guys, like, what do you think about this? Like, this is how I was like, how did I get away? Like, how the fuck did I just walk away? You know, and they're like, well, you probably weren't a target. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, but, you know, what's up with this federal search warrant? And they're like, yeah, I mean, maybe they were just using the feds to make the stop. But then again, you know, if this is federal, it could get indicted. Um you know, we came to the conclusion it was going to get indicted. We didn't understand all the pieces on the board. But there's a little bit of time that passes uh, before you get the indictment. And I, I think you and your girlfriend or your your, your significant other were uh, thinking of moving on uh, with life. Yeah, I, I well, think you were actually trying there, to well, adopt. Well, yeah, well, there's a lot of time. So first what happens is for three weeks, we have no idea what the fuck is happening because it's a state case, but things aren't adding up. Like, it's just a very strange state case. No one's in touch about it with the other side. You know, like none of the attorneys are getting phone calls. Then one morning, one someone hits me up and they're like, yo, get the fuck out of your house. Run. And I'm like, what? And they're like, the feds just kicked everyone's doors in and they indicted everybody this morning. They were like, you haven't been indicted yet, but you should get moving. Um, Just in case you're going to get scooped later. You got to see what's up. So. I get mobile and I'm calling everyone and it's like star Wars. Like, you know, like all wings report in like red one, red two, red three, you know, you're trying to see like who's still around. Um, some people aren't calling back. So I get to my parents' house and I have to come clean to them and apologize to them and tell them everything. I had to tell my parents everything I just told you in the last hour and 20 minutes cold. My fucking, what was that experience? Like it wasn't good. You know, it's, it's, I understand that like, that's an enormous disappointment to them because they're not going to see any of this stuff like, Oh, Bohemian Jewish pot mobster. They're going to be like, you fucking like what, why bro? Not bro, but why Daniel? Why? You know? And I get that. I was just trying to be me. I mean, this was just who I was and like how I, perceived and reacted to the world. I certainly didn't want to hurt anybody, but one of the vicious ironies of engaging in a life of nonviolent crime is that even if it's ostensibly victimless, the main victims are the people you love. You know, like maybe I didn't hurt anyone with the weed I sold, but I certainly hurt my parents immensely. I mean, killed them. You know, I took years off their life. I have no doubt of that. And I have to live with that. And I hurt my wife very badly too. You know, I, I put her in horrifically stressful situations that she should not have had to be in. And it wasn't fair. I was doing it from a good place. I was just trying to put food on the table and get us ahead. And I wanted us to have, I wanted us to have the American dream. And I didn't see any other way I could get it for me personally, temperamentally. I just, it was never, I was never going to work doing anything else. This worked. And this also just kind of sung to my soul and my je ne sais quoi about life, but it doesn't make it um, okay for them. So no, it was horrible. My yeah, parents, I mean, but at, at the same time, it's not, you know, you're, 
what you're doing isn't exactly you're you're not like Tony Montana Scarface chainsawing people while doing organized. No, no, not not at all. I'm basically like a numbers. What I was what people would all say about me was they're like, you're like a numbers kingpin. You know, like the old school guys that would take the bets who were again, that was organized crime. They were mobsters. They weren't gangsters. You know what I mean? Like they were they 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 were tough. Like when they got popped, they would go to jail, but they weren't out there chainsawing people. They had a business and it was an underworld business. They had a little bit of flair, a little bit of panache. People knew they made money and that they weren't like a normal nine to five guy, but they weren't like vicious fucking murderers either. That was me. I was like the weed was numbers. It was ubiquitous. You know, you could back in the day, you could go in a store anywhere in the city and play the number, you know. Now it's like you could go to my weird apartment and friendship and buy edibles off Dale. Same, same thing, same, just, it just moves in waves. You know, it's the same type of thing. I understand what you're saying. What I'm saying is that when you're a family and you have like certain hopes, dreams, wishes, expectations, and fears for your kid, the fact that your kid now, look, I bet you they're a lot more supportive than they would have been. Had I been like, guys, I sold fentanyl you know, or guys, I've been defrauding the elderly or, you know, some, some really scummy shit, you know what I mean? Or whatever, or, you know, guys, I traffic weapons or something, you know, cause these are other federal crimes, you know, like, 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 like it's better, but it doesn't erase the pain. I mean, I'm going to the same place. So it doesn't make it any easier for them, if that makes sense. So that was, again, going back to the whole like mobster thing, you know, who took me out, right? It was the organized crime and narcotics strike force. Wow. That's what they thought I was. <laughs> so um, I, I tell them it's hard. It's bad. I apologize to them, honestly. And I'm like, look, I've been done for about a month anyways, and I plan on staying. So I just hope I don't have to go to prison. I mean, that's where it's at. I'm going to help everyone out, all my friends. I'm going to get them bond. I'm going to do what I need to do by them. Um, and I'm just going to try and live my life and hope that this works out. And I'm really sorry. And I love you guys. You know, they're very disappointed, but they also accepted that, you know, they love me and they accepted it. And I said, I was like, look, I was like, check up on me. Like I only sold weed, sold some shrooms sometimes too. And, um, and I, uh, and you know, like I, I didn't hurt anybody, you know, I never did. I never, I never was about that. Um, so yeah, it was hard. Um, time goes on and the paranoia is getting really bad now. It's ratcheting up because this is a federal indictment. And the way the feds work is I would like, I, I use a lot of iconography from movies when I describe stuff. Cause I was a cinephile at some, at one point. Oh, same um, here. Same here. <laughs> okay. So like, you know, the, the trope in a movie where someone lights the stick of dynamite with the long wick and it just goes like, that's the feds. Like the lick is the wick has been lit. And it's just going, you know, it might take a long time to blow up. I, I was going to compare it to uh, it's it's sort of like uh, one of those Jaws movies where the shark is coming. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, you know, like, you know, it's coming in my truth out op ed. I liken them. We called it the sea monster because I almost thought of a Game of Thrones scene like where like I don't know if there ever was one like this in Game of Thrones, you know, but like almost like the White Walkers in like the one place. But like where it's like you're on a boat and you just see like a tentacle come and pull a boat next to you underwater. And then like there's silence. Then another boat gets pulled underwater. Then another boat gets pulled underwater. And you just that's the feds, man. Like it's like a horror movie because what they do is it's like a zombie or alien thing. Like they snatch someone and then they turn them into them. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Like invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, totally. The fed, they get their hands on your people and then they make them into a fed. Then all of a sudden the, your, your people are feds. So uh, think about how terrifying that is, you know, and you can see them working so many degrees out because you, we would be followed all the time when we left our house. There were cameras now all over the place, like obvious fucking cameras aimed at our house from different locations and angles. People are calling me up all the time to reminisce about shit, which is like really weird. You're like calling me on an open phone line to talk about like shit we did back in the day, weed wise. Obviously they're wired up, you know, they, they got flipped, they got handlers. Weird things are happening like this all the time. And then I'm seeing people in the street and they're being like, yo, man, cops called my friend about like a fucking financial deal that he made like four years ago. And then you can like pinpoint that you're like, Oh, that's cause that guy's telling. So he told about that. So that spread to this. So this went there, you know? So like the, the paranoia, like I can't even describe it. Like the terror it's, it's, it's so it's Kafka-esque. Kafka-esque, Kafka-esque or like a Cold War spy novel where like everyone, the double cross, the triple cross, the like you're never safe. You're, you're never safe because you know what's going to happen if they get you. They're going to fucking crack you. There's no way out of prison because based on federal law, there's no probation. There's no whatever. You either rat or you go to jail. Now, so, are you thinking about that? Are you like, are you going over in your head? If they get me, maybe I have to rat or are you like, I will never do that. I knew I would never rat. So I was just super, I was super, um, uh, I was super distraught over the fact that I was going to have to go do a bid. So I knew my doom was assured because I was never going to tell. I wouldn't even safety valve, you know, which is like the limited proffer you can do to get out of the mandatories into the guidelines. Cause again, keeping a G, I just won't do that shit. That's not in my principles as a street guy. I won't, I, you know, that to me, you know, you won't, you only have honor, you know, it's like, I look, there's reasons for safety valving. I don't want to get on from this tangent about fuck that shit because I actually do know people who have that I'm, I'm cool with or whatever. In my particular instance, I would never have because there's unindicted co-conspirators and other people involved who were charged that weren't rats that I would have had to have speak on, spoken on, you know, whereas it's different. I think if you get arrested solo or if you... um you know, if, if a bunch of guys agree to do it, then whatever, I will say this, it's mega frowned upon inside. And I know that because like four different people have hit me up from inside and been like, dude, it's super frowned upon here. Like people don't fuck with it. So I was never going to do any of that shit. I wasn't going to cooperate. I wasn't going to cooperate in any form or fashion. So I'm very, very bummed out, you know, because I, I know that prison is inevitable, but it's like not happening today. So you're, so basically like, it's almost like a bunch, like a, a sack of blackberries and a t-shirt press, just like, like all the juice is just sizzled out of you. Like you're just a husk. You have nothing, you know, you, you, there's nothing, you have no joy anymore. You're just like literally like a zombie shuffling from day to day, waiting for the inevitable door to get kicked in or phone call. And then things got worse because then I get full scale confirmation that people are flipping attorneys start getting fired. That's a big one because I hook people up with my boys as lawyers. And then people are either using my boys to rat on me with them, or they're firing the attorneys and going for other ones, which again, you know, any, again, in any 
organized criminal activity, when that happens, you know what the fuck it means. That's a, it's a given. So you can imagine now, I just feel like, you know, it's like my, I'm fucked and I don't know what I'm going to be charged with either. Remember, like I'm meeting with my old heads, like other G's that have gone through this shit. And they went down when weed was far more illegal than it is now, not uh, statutorily, just perceptually. So they're like, dude, like you could get 20 years. Like my one boy told me, he's like, run. He was like, just run dog, run. He was like, get your money, fucking run. He was like, let them catch up to you. Imagine hearing that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, you're just like, all right, you're like, well, my life is fucking over. So I'm thinking, I'm like, all right, do I bang out of the country? Do I go overseas? Like, how do I, how long am I going to have to be out there for? Like, am I ever going to see my family again? And I was like, oh, I can't run. I was like, I, I have to get through this because I want to be able to like actually like live a normal life again someday. So then one of the guys from the house who got indicted, there are two guys from the house, my best friend, um, his dad and his uncle, the dad got away that day. And then he got indicted um, because he was on camera and I guess he left his phone there or whatever. And he was just the guy that was there to help. Like he wasn't a big player in any way, shape or form. He got indicted on a mandatory minimum because this isn't a hundred kilogram conspiracy. So for anyone who listens to this, that's a mandatory minimum of five years in federal prison, statutory maximum of 40 years. So your statutory maximum is really 80 years in prison if they ran you max consecutive because they had two counts. <laughs> so he's looking at this and he just snaps. He doesn't want to tell on anybody, but he doesn't want to go to prison and he feels like his life is over. He's 60 some years old, father of three, grandfather of eight, I think, and great grandfather of one. And he kills himself. My best friend hits me up in the middle of the summer and he's like, he's gone. And I'm like, who's gone? And he's like, my dad's gone. I was like, your dad jumped bond. I was like, fuck man. Like, that's not good. He's like, no, my dad's was found hanging in his basement from a pipe. He's dead, bro. I was like, I mean, I wanted to fucking die. I literally was just like, I wanted to run in traffic and get fucking hit. Cause again, another thing I want to harp on. Just because you're like a street guy and you're tough or whatever, bro, like I'm a fucking human being. Like I loved my friends and the people around me. I never saw these people as like disposable cogs in my quest to make money. To me, this was something we were doing together. Was I the chief financial beneficiary? For sure. Absolutely. That's how you know capitalism is going to capitalism. Did I have love for all these people? Absolutely. They were all my people. I love them. I, I didn't want anything like this to happen to them. Some people in the underworld, when shit like that happens, they're just like, wasn't me killed me fucking murdered me that that happened to him so now i really realize i hear that there's a superseding indictment coming to that there's there's three to ten new weed defendants teed up for the superseding indictment so i have my attorneys reach out to the feds and say like look like i know that you know that i know that you know who i am <laughs> like yeah like, like like we all like we all know what the fuck is going on here. I know roughly who's telling on me, although I'm sure I'm shorting it by three or four people. Cause I'm sure there's a bunch of people I don't even know about that just went in and told on me. So I just want to get this over with for the sake of myself, my wife, my mom, my own sanity, because I'm honestly thinking about fucking jumping out of a window myself at this point. Like I'm not, I don't feel good. I just want this over with. 
I don't want any special treatment. I don't want any breaks. I don't expect a fucking parade for turning myself in. I get it. I did it. I admit it. I'm guilty of breaking the law. Even if I don't agree with the law, I broke it. I just want to take responsibility for what I did. And I just want the same, the mandatory minimum sentence on the hundred kilo case, five years. That's all I, no deal really. Just, I just want to get this over with. And they said, basically, well, we're not interested in that, but if you want to come in and talk, you're welcome to basically like, well, we need you to indict these other 10 people who are your friends. Um, but you know, yeah, like the idea of you taking responsibility for this, like, fuck you, you can go fucking dangle and we'll come get you when we get you. So I got mad, you know, cause again, at a certain point, again, I'm tough. So at a certain point I've backed up enough at this point, you know, that's it. My hands are up. Not my hands are up and surrender. My, my fists are up. And I'm like, you know what? You guys can go fuck yourselves. You know where I'm at. I'm not doing, I'm not coming in. I'm not telling on anybody. I'm not doing shit. I'm just going to live my fucking miserable life. And when you come get me, you come get me. You want to do this to me over weed. It's already been like four or five months, like do what you got to do. So we settle into the most miserable year of our lives so far. Like Homer said to Bart, the most miserable year of my life, the most miserable year so far, because <laughs> it got way worse, actually. Um, you know, nothing happens. Uh, you know, I'm completely almost estranged from my family and all my friends. Like we don't see anybody. We don't do anything. We don't go anywhere. We just sit slumped in a corner and wait for them to come. More time passes. COVID happens. So now all that's happening to the entire country for us too, on top of all this shit. And I'm not, I haven't gone back to the street shit. I really was like, okay, I'm going to make an honest break of this because like I said to my wife and my parents that this was it and I was Gucci and whatever, I'm done. Like I'm just, I'm good, you know? So I, I really, you know, I was just trying to like live my life to the extent that I could COVID happens. Things start getting pushed back nothing's happening, whatever. Even some of my attorneys are like, yeah, dude, like you might, you know, like, I don't know, man, like they would have come by now. And COVID really is a, that's an X factor. No one thought about the day the raid happened. When I had, when I was in the meeting with my lawyer, I was like, well, what if there's a once in 150 year pandemic next spring, would that affect my indictment status? I didn't think to ask that question. That wasn't on my, my bingo board of shit to ask my attorneys. So I, you know, more time passes and, you know, we get this weird sense of hope and it's not just false hope. I mean, literally other people adjacent to the situation are like, yeah, I don't know, man, it's COVID. You know what I mean? This changes everything. I mean, they really got to prioritize now. Plus Joe Biden's running for president and it looks like he's going to win. And he's saying in these debates, I mean, he said it more than once, probably two, three times. I think I called him out for lying once, but I'm sure he lied more than that. Yeah, he didn't, didn't he, uh, at one of the debates, I think Cory Booker and like Bernie Sanders were arguing. Yeah, they were handing his ass to him about this shit. And he like blatantly pivoted to try and get left where they were and said, no one should be in pot for this shit, be in jail for pot, man. Come on, yeah, Jack. He, yeah, yeah, he always says that. Come, come on, on man, corn, you know, come on, come, man. On. come on, corn pop. Like, you know, so like the, it, 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 he just keeps, you know, like, and you could tell if you go pull that debate clip, Cory Booker really looks at him like you motherfucker. Cause he knows he's lying. Cause Cory Booker has authentically had this position 
the entire time he's been in government. Like he, you know, if it, it, whatever else you would think about Cory Booker, if Cory Booker were fucking president, this shit wouldn't be happening to me. The, it, it, he would have, if he couldn't have legalized it through Congress, he would have at least pardoned everyone. He would have. He was very Bernie Sanders too. Bernie Sanders would have Bernie Sanders said, he's like, on my first day in office, I will pardon all nonviolent marijuana offenses under my power. And he would have. Yeah, I, I was going to say with that. I mean, with Cory Booker, people can say, oh, he, he's like part of the Democratic machine now. But I mean, at one point when he was first starting out, like he was really progressive and he probably I think he still does believe in some of this. I think things. he believes in it. I mean, he so Cory Booker, to his credit, he blocked safe banking because he realizes correctly that if the business interests for corporate marijuana get safe banking, they don't give a fuck if we rot in jail for the rest of our lives. You know, they'll 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 get their safe banking and be off to the races because then they can use FDIC insured institutions to hold their fucking wheelbarrows, not wheelbarrows, sorry, uh, garbage trucks filled with cash. <laughs> and, and then I might have had a wheelbarrow cash. They have garbage trucks. They got 18 wheelers filled with cash. And then they, you know, they're good then, you know, they, 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 they don't, they don't need us for anything. So Cory Booker realizes that and he's like, look, any safe banking has to come with a criminal justice relief component. So he, to his credit, he's been solid about that. Biden on the campaign trail is desperately trying to shed he, you know, a little small inconvenient thing about Biden was he actually wrote the law that got me my mandatory minimum. So <laughs> a little what, small, what was that law? Could you talk a little bit about that? Bill. And again, look, it wasn't. Wait, Nate, Nate, say that again, because I you broke out for a second. The 1994 crime bill. So I think it's the truth and sentencing. That's where people, you know, people got he, he started. They started imposing the flat mandatories in the feds where you get no good time, no parole, no nothing. Just, you know cookie cutter rat or go to fucking prison. It took all the discretion from the hands of the judiciary, the, you know, the presidentially appointed federal judges um, and put it into the hands of the prosecutors. So now the prosecutors always decided who to charge, what charges to bring. And now they basically get to sentence you, not the judge. I, w- I was going to say too, you sort of see the same thing with uh, Kamala Harris too, right? Like, like she, I mean, she was like, the prosecutor of all the prosecutors, you know, going out yeah, in California, yeah. she, was, she was going hard against the weed industry back when it was more politically advantageous to do. Now that the weed industry in California is like the oil industry in Texas, she can't touch it. So now she gets on and to pander to a more progressive, younger base. She I used to smoke she, weed and listen to Tupac, even though uh-huh. Tupac uh, came after I was in college. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Exactly. Like, yeah, just blatant pandering on Charlemagne the God and all the hip hop morning shows talking about how weed is good. It brings people joy, whatever. And, and, you know, when they're interviewing her, she's like getting people out of prison. She was like, it's a foregone conclusion. She's like, that's like first day. Nothing's happened, but we have hope. I mean, just because it's so dumb. I almost sound like Homer Simpson dumb. I'm like, or Marge Simpson naive. I'm like, we have hope because we took Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at their word. But I mean, you know, my only alternative was Trump. And honestly, Trump probably would have been easier to get an individual pardon from. But his uh, the people he appointed to run the DOJ were like nightmares for weed, you know, Sessions and Barr. And even the guy who was the U.S. attorney here when this shit went down, Scott Brady, you know, I mean, he wasn't he, 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 he would follow weed to the end of the earth like he was a throwback 
to the nineties, you know, he, he wasn't a, a progressive prosecutor, he was such an oxymoron world's tallest midget, you know, being a progressive prosecutor, but um, yeah, so we had some hope, you know, as that, as that's happening. So we wait all through that. I mean, you know, Biden gets elected or at least, you know, some people think Biden got elected. I watch, I watch insurrectionists storm the fucking Capitol, you know, and I'm like, man, that's crazy. And I remember saying to my wife when that happened, I was like, if I get jammed, I bet you I get way more time than any of these people. Like up to yeah, that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Like all you're doing is selling weed. They're, they're like trying to overturn the, overthrow the, the government violently on camera and tweeting about it. They're like, on my way to overthrow the government. Then they film themselves overthrowing, attempting to overthrow the government. They didn't want them to like kill a cop or something. You know, like, like, like none of them got in trouble. Really, I think the worst sentence any one of them got was like just under five years. And that was a guy, again, who got convicted for like violently assaulting people in the in in the place. So Biden gets elected, or at least some people say he does. I believe he did. I'm not just being sarcastic because, I mean, like we live in this, you know, we live in a timeline that the guys from Black Mirror gave up writing about because... (laughs) They're really just like, you can't, it doesn't even make sense anymore. Like you can't, you know, like you literally can't make any of this shit up. So yeah, we think that maybe there's a chance that we're all good. I mean, now it's been 18 months since it happened. You know, we're not talking about a few months. We're talking about over a year going into 2021, uh, you know, new uh, department of justice coming in, new attorney general, new United States attorneys taking over in the various districts, Democrats, de-emphasis on pot for sure you know indictments are way down uh uh categorically statistically they're down like 70 80 percent so yeah we we have reason to be cautiously hopeful the other thing is you got to remember we spent like now at this point two plus years in abject misery waiting for the shoe to drop you got to live like i mean quote the shawshank redemption either i get busy living or get busy dying so that's how you you ended up trying to adopt it this time or, or yes or, so 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 at this point i have a legitimate business that i'm running or attempting to run i mean i'll i'll say this it's it's a lot harder than uh fucking you know being a mobster <laughs> my money money isn't as fast and the losses are much bigger um yeah and we want to have a family because that's something that was kind of deferred through a lot of my street career um, because of various stresses and uh, other reasons. And obviously it was deferred once the raid happened because we had no idea what the fuck was happening in our lives. So now that we have some hope, I mean, we really seize that hope with both hands. We're like, okay, I've gone straight. I've taken responsibility for what I did. I mean, I, I literally tried to turn myself in and they didn't come for me. And even my lawyers are like, they're not coming now. Those are just like, yo, just live your life, man. You know, like do what you were going to do. So I'm like, I volunteer to deliver. And I did this in 2019 when I quit because I just wanted to live a different kind of life. I had volunteered to deliver kosher meals to Jewish seniors in the neighborhood that couldn't get out um, because of mobility issues. And then during COVID, it kind of became really important because a lot of their relatives couldn't even fly in from out of town to take care of them. So I was like, you know, my son, not just me, myself, my wife, and the other volunteers who did the other routes wasn't just me. I'm not making that claim. We're one of their main lifelines to the world. I mean, sometimes we're the only people that they interacted with slash the only people who got them food. They were living off of us because they're, they're, you know, these were really old people who weren't going to be able to work a delivery app. They couldn't get like Uber Eats or Grubhub. 
and they could not leave the house under the best of circumstances. You remember the height of COVID in a, in a major city. You know, I mean, it was like the fucking like uh, 28 days later, nobody was outside. Old people were dying in droves. And a lot of these people have kids who can't get to them now. You know, normally if there was a crisis, they would simply just fly them down to where they live or one of the kids would come and bring them food or move in with them. Well, you can't do that now. So I did that and I did that again. I didn't do that because I wanted to get in good on my potential sentence three years later. I did it because in the hopes that I could change my life around. So like all this stuff, I'm like, I'm trying to honestly show that I could go straight and be a different guy, that, that I could do more than what I was doing, that I was more than the street shit. So yeah, we, we want to adopt. We call the agency. We start jumping through all the hoops. We take a battery of tests, medical, educational, vocational, psychological, financial, uh, just anything, any psychological, anything you could think of. Um, we pass everything. We're going, we're going, we're going. Um, my, the, the guy who's my best friend, who was his uncle and his dad, he dies on July 3rd. He overdosed, um, is, is what was heard. And, um, that was really, this you know, is different than the guy that hung himself. Yeah. It's his son. His son overdosed now. Okay. His son was so distraught over what had happened that he, his own issues were exacerbated greatly. A lot of people died in this case. That's something I want to make people aware of is like a lot of people's lives. Wasn't just my life. So you can watch me and be like, I don't fucking like this guy. You know, he comes off as like slick, disingenuous. Okay, cool. Fuck me. I get it. There were a lot of other people whose lives were utterly destroyed in this, like just destroyed. Ended. Let alone mine was destroyed. Theirs were ended. Yeah. They're like, I don't know. It's a weird case because. I mean, what you did, it may have been, you know, technically illegal, but it's also, you're not Tony Montana or El Chapo out there. You know, you're not like a Mexican drug. I know, like they treated us like that. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's like, that's the thing. Like, that's why at a certain point you just kind of own it. Right. Because when they're treating you like that, that's what it is, I guess, you know, like that's because trust me, I, we were literally being treated as such, like no, no difference. They were that aggressive. So you know? right about the time that you're trying to do the adoption stuff is that that's when the indictment comes in, right? Yeah. So my, we're getting right up there. My friend dies. And then two or three weeks later, a secret grand jury convenes in downtown Pittsburgh and I'm indicted under seal. I don't know I'm indicted, but I, I, I was, I was indicted. And then um, the social worker comes to do the home study for us and she goes through the house. I take a walk with her through the neighborhood where I live, show her, we live, show her around. She interviews me at length and she says, oh, you guys are going to be great parents. You know, like, like I, next stop is you're going to have to go to Seoul, South Korea, um, you know, complete the match with your potential child to be. But on this side, which is the big hoop, you're through it. You know, you're signed off. You're ready. You're ready to go. Like, this is going to happen. 48 hours later, my lawyer calls me and he says, you've been indicted. And I mean, I was just, I was literally like, I mean, you know, it was just like, that just must be devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, devastating. I, I cannot describe it. I was just like, 
I mean, honestly, I'm glad I didn't have a gun handy because I might have literally just picked up and just blown my fucking brains out. Because especially after everything else that happened, like, you know, after the whole, I mean, what I've been talking to you for an hour, 50 minutes. So after the whole hour and 50 minutes that I just fucking described, that's how it ends. I thought, you know, we thought we made it. We thought we were okay. You know, it would be like you got to read to to make a movie comparison. You you, you, just when you think uh, Jason Voorhees is down for the count, he comes back for you. Yes, a hundred percent. I would I compared it to a horror movie sometimes too, because like you'd be like running from them and you could like throw a pan at them or like knock something over on them and they just keep like coming at you, you know, with like the knife. Like it's like it's never it's never gonna end. Or it's like the well, show- it's, it's like the final moment of like uh what is it? Uh like like a movie like uh Wes Craven's Scream, where you know they have to kill the <laughs> the the the, uh, the slasher ghost face like three times and he still won't die, you know. Still won't die. That's so or it would be like the end of the Shawshank Redemption where he gets to the beach in Mexico. You know, and you, you remember the end. You, you cut out. You cut out there. You said where he gets to the beach in Mexico. Repeat. Yeah, that remember he gets to the beach in Mexico. The last scene, they just show it from a long shot, and it, you know they show him like walking up to his friend and they hug on the beach, like he made it. You know, it would be like if that happened, and then the feds just came and rushed them, like right then. <laughs> like that. That yeah, was yeah. like you know, it was like I thought we made it. You know. Yeah, it's 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 like the uh, end of a uh, just to make this like very Pittsburghy. Uh, it, it's like the end of Night of the Living Dead. You think Dwayne Jones. Uh, the black dude that's been a badass the whole movie has survived. And then the cops just shoot him at the end after he survived the night of the zombies. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You think you made it and then it's over. And that's, again, it's a movie trope. I don't imagine having that feeling in real life. And then just knowing you get the phone call and then, you know, it all, you're just like, wow, I got ratted on eight ways from Sunday. <laughs> I am going to federal prison. We're not having a kid now. It's all over. And it was and you're like, still, you're saying I'm not going to snitch still. And, and you're probably yeah. going to tell the judge that too. Yeah. Yeah. I told my lawyer that when he called me, I said, look, I know we haven't talked in like two years. And I also said to him, I know you don't particularly like me because of the commercial. I get it. I kind of got that vibe from you when we first met. I just want to let you know right now that I need your help. Obviously I'm going to pay you, but I need your help. And I'm not, I'm not telling at all. I'm not cooperating. I'm going to take this right down the line and whatever happens, happens. I'm just letting you know that. And he said, I respect that. He was like, you were young. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. I understand that now you're not a bad guy, kid. And he was like, I respect it. He was like, let's go. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'll talk to you soon. They even let me turn myself in for like four days. I didn't even know what I was charged with for like four days. So before, before we close out here, because I know we've gone a, l- a little bit long and I appreciate you're taking more time out of your day. I, I thought we were going to go an hour. We've gone two hours. This is a really great conversation. But uh, there was also something about, so when you get sentenced, I guess the the people prosecuting you were trying to be cute or something and they referenced yeah. that line, the consequences line. Go on about that. Yeah. So, I mean, when you get sentenced, there's dueling sentencing memos that come out like your side writes a sentencing memo that suggests what you should get. And your attorney will obviously go for the most lenient sentence possible. And their side will probably ask for a a longer sentence, or maybe sometimes they agree with the sentence. Um, And they'll, you know, cite acts from the actual case and, you know, things about you. And the thing in the feds is that prior and uncharged conduct is admissible for purposes of sentencing. So they could sentence me based on stuff that had nothing to add that actually do with my actual offense 
that I was being charged with. So they wanted me to tell for a variety of reasons. One, because that's just how they roll. Two, because I honestly think from a moral standpoint, they saw it as a victory if they could get me to tell because, you know, given like the, you know, kind of like bohemian folkloric outlaw status that I had and like my, you know, two, 3000 person friend acquaintance circle in the city that, and because of the commercial, it would have, you know, they want that. They're like, see, he told the, you know, the, you keep your trap shut. I'll keep your trap open guy told. So, you know, like if he told then any, you know, then, then, you know, remember kids always follow the law. Yeah. You know, then, I, I also think it's like, I mean, you, you can make the argument that it's, it's just as much like business for them too. Right. They're just like, well, we shut another case. We won, you know, it's not always simply about like, Oh, we're fighting for justice. Uh, even uh, though people want to portray it that way. Um, I, so, you know what? I honestly think that in my case, I didn't think so at first, but then when I read the sentencing memo, I realized that this was a hundred percent personal. Not that I wasn't guilty of what I did. I'm not, again, I take responsibility for what I did. I literally said so when I was being sentenced, I stand on what I did like a man. I don't agree with the law, but it doesn't abrogate my responsibility for it. So I won't, I said, I won't pass this responsibility on to anyone else. AKA I will not inform. I think it's fundamentally un-American when you get in trouble to throw it on the next guy. It's not right. So they were angry that I wouldn't tell. They also were angry because initially when I got hit, I didn't say, so here's the other thing too. I want to make this very clear because I'll be doing podcasts until I can't anymore. Um, when I initially got indicted, I didn't say a word for two and a half years prior. I literally was a ghost. I did not exist on social media. Only a small circle of people who actually knew me knew what was up with me. I was just a ghost. I just stayed completely low. Even after I got indicted, I did not say a word. I did not post about it. I did not talk about it. I did not nothing. Only after I pled guilty and I got smashed in all the newspapers because they asked me for comment and I said no comment. And that was a mistake. And then they, you know, completely smeared me. Only then did I start speaking up for myself and talking about how this was fucked up and how nobody should be in jail for pot now, period. Then that positive press started seeping back in to their consciousness and it upset them because they've never had a sympathetic defendant before. The feds don't have sympathetic defendants. The, 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 you know, like, 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 like they're all like gangster gangsters and like, you know, people who sell hard drugs and like bank robbers and stuff. Like, when do you ever see a sympathetic federal defendant besides like standing rock protesters or a pot guy? It, it just doesn't protesters. It doesn't it doesn't exist. So they got angry and the judge also did not want to sentence me to 60 months. But because of the crime bill, they could only go under it if I proffered. So. They based the judge, which this is an incredibly rare situation. They reached out to the prosecution and said, I'm not comfortable with giving him 60 months, which is almost unprecedented. This just like does not happen. Um, but they, the prosecution had no way out from under that unless I cooperated. So now I'm in the position like a week before I get sentenced of the prosecution and my attorney hitting me up and being like, won't you proffer? like to basically like help the institution save face, you'll get less time. You know, you'll get sentenced inside the guidelines, but you know, it's going to require a proffer. 
And I respectfully said, absolutely not. I'm not fucking proffering. I'm not doing shit. I was like, if they have such an issue with me getting 60 months, then you shouldn't have fucking indicted me on something that is 60 month mandatory. Like why play games with people like that? You know, I said to him in the message, I was like, uh, is me proffering going to bring any of my dead friends back or is it going to bring us our baby back? No. Okay. I'm good then. I don't, you know, I'm good. I'm not, I was like, just give me my 60 months. It's the same thing I asked for two years ago, two and a half years ago. That made them very angry. So then they came out with a sentencing memo that had very, and you can find it on Twitter, I think on Hillary Agro's um, Twitter, but uh, it came out with a sentencing memo that had very little to do with the actual substance of the crimes. And it literally just quoted the commercial. Like they're trying to dunk on me. You know, they, 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 they thought like, yeah, man, like they, they thought they were being funny in, in the context of like, you're sent you're I'm being sentenced to prison and it's a mandatory minimum. There's literally no deviation. Like everyone's asking for this much time, but they took the opportunity to try and shit on me as much as they possibly could at the very end. Again, not realizing how psychotic and sadistic it made them look because then when it went up on Twitter, again, talk a a commercial going viral. Okay. A sentencing memo is the driest document in the world. It's like reading fucking Ikea instructions. A sentencing memo went viral on Twitter because of how egregious the shit they put in it was about me because it had nothing to do with what I did. And it basically, I made them so angry because I'm me and I wouldn't tell that they tipped their hand at the end. And they're like, all right, you know what? Fuck you. This was always about the commercial. You fucking piece of shit. You smart ass. They basically like snapped. And what, what specifically stood out in the memo? If my, if my oh. listeners haven't seen it. Oh, so, so it starts with consequences suck. Don't they? Then it goes on to, uh, you know, enumerate other things from the commercial. And then I have a line in the commercial that says, you keep your trap shut and I'll keep your trap open. My business cards actually used to say that too. (laughs) You keep your trap shut, I'll keep your trap open. And uh, they go, his trap is closed forever and he's headed to federal prison. Like you could see them in the office, just like, is this good? Yeah, this is like high-fiving each other. Not realizing that like anyone else in the world who read this, including like other prosecutors would be like, ugh, that's creepy. That, that's vindictive. <laughs> vindictive, oh, it's beyond vindictive. It's beyond vindictive. And it also confirms that, again, to your point, you kept saying, you're not El Chapo, da 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 Okay, why did they pursue me for two and a half years over a pot case? Because I'm me. It doesn't change that I'm guilty. I take responsibility for that. I'm not claiming innocence, but clearly the, their power rests as much in their discretion as it does in their exertion of it. And uh, their discretion is that they have purview over pretty much any criminal case in the city, county, state, in their district, whatever. The reason that they picked up my case after so long and it merely being a nonviolent marijuana case, albeit a large-scale organized one, was that they hated me. And that I wouldn't. And, and then their increasing frustration that because they assumed I would rap. Again, it's not the most important thing in their day. They got a million cases. I'm not saying they like, you know, they sat up all night, all nights of the year thinking about it, but it was a, it was a priority for them to get me, break me, make me tell. And I just, you know, as I always do, I refuse to get with the fucking program. So here I am. Yeah. And I, I just want to say in closing, I don't know the, the bringing up in the memo, the consequences sure do suck thing. It's like, well, you know, 
Dan's not wrong about that. Consequences do suck. And everyone within the legal system knows that. I mean, the people that support consequences uh, know that. I mean, that's why they have consequences. But not only that, it's like we have a legal system where I don't know if you've ever seen the HBO series, The Jinx, right, Uh, about Robert Durst. There's that whole interview with a lawyer in that where the lawyer's like, well, the way the system's set up is, uh, you know, if you can pay the best lawyer enough money, you you can probably avoid certain consequences. That's just how the system is working. Everyone knows it. Yeah, no, it's true. Although I will say they're pretty fucking egalitarian about large-scale organized drug trafficking because most of those guys have a lot of money. And I certainly paid the best lawyer, criminal defense attorney, best two or three in my district, and I still got the mandatory minimum. The only thing that gets you out of a drug crime is ratting. You actually get a lot more leeway on like murder and like rape and stuff and stealing from people. There, there's always some maybe something that can be done, but you know, large scale, nonviolent uh, crime, drug trafficking, where you sell uh, a plant that's medicinal from uh, yourself to a willing adult user. No, there, there's no mercy for that. So in closing, I, I want to give you the floor. Uh, what do you want to say to my listeners um, and anything we may have missed? What, what do you want people to get out of this conversation? And is there any way they can support you? Yeah. So my friend who's in Yale law right now, and he ran Massachusetts for Bernie in 2020, he was like the state director. He got so enraged at what happened to me that he started a campaign called No Pardons, No Votes. And it's basically directed at centrist careerist Democrats who are either oppose pot, even though, you know, 90 some percent of their party backs it, you know, just in a straight attempt to get your vote while also pandering to the police and prosecutorial and correctional votes from the unions that they need. Or it's from Kamala style Democrats who pretend or Biden who pretend to be sympathetic to marijuana crimes but at the same time, actually had no intention of doing anything about it. It was just simply a way to accrue your vote. And what we're asking you to do is to go to pardonsnow.com, P-A-R-D-O-N-S now.com and uh, sign the pledge and sign up and simply say that you will not vote for any Democrat. We don't want you to be Republican. Don't need to be libertarian. Just you're going to sit out the vote and wreak havoc on the cycle and your candidate will lose unless they run it up the flagpole from local to state, state to congressional, congressional, senatorial, senatorial to the White House, gubernatorial, all of that, that they will not blindly support Democrats anymore unless Joe Biden pardons 2,700, 999 nonviolent federal pot prisoners because that he there's 40,000 in jail nationally, but he has the power to let the federal ones out now plus 1,100 waiting to go in. And, um, you know, he can also pardon me. And I say 2,700, 999, 2,700. Yeah, whatever. I say that because of this. I I, I say this because of this. 2,799. I will go do my time. I will go do every day of five years if that was the bargain. There was some crazy Faustian bargain where everyone else got to go home and I had to go do my time. I'll go do more time. I'll go do eight. I'll go do nine to, to, to free all these other people. It's really not about me. It's really about my friend, Bobby Capelli, who's 
doing 95 months in federal prison right now for the same charge, 100 kilogram weed conspiracy. Luke Scarmazzo is doing 22 years in federal prison right now for owning pot shops in Modesto, California, and refusing to tell on anyone and refusing to admit that marijuana isn't medicinal. They wanted him to say that it was harmful to get a plea bargain and he wouldn't do it. Uh, it's for John Wall, who's in a supermax detention center right now in downtown Baltimore, getting ready to go on trial on a thousand kilo conspiracy. He's looking at 10 to life right now. Um, yeah. And it's for Parker Coleman, who's doing 60 plus years in federal prison right now. You know, Corvain Cooper got pardoned by Trump. He was doing life without parole. This, your elected leaders are duping you, Democrats. If they can't do this for you, all the other stuff that they promised, fixing climate change, gender equality, pay gap, uh, combating racism and policing, um, universal basic income, uh, shoring up social security for our generation, uh, student loans, reparations, preserving abortion rights. I'm sorry if I'm missing any uh, maternity leave. None of those things will ever happen because the 2800, the 2799, that's easy. That's a rounding error in the feds. If they can't do this shit, they're never going to do anything else. So I urge you to go to pardons now and make your franchise heard by saying you won't exercise it. And once enough snow sticks to that avalanche, they're going to be in trouble. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.